the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoy this special crime episode. Sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to the show. Calling all cars, the copyrighted program created for the Rio Grande Oil Company. Police calling all cars, sending all cars, broadcast seven. Starting a holdup and murder on the National City site. Bandits wearing tan coveralls, dark glasses, and driving a black Ford Roadster without a windshield. He's in an arm, so be careful. That's all. about your city every hour of the day and night. Would you risk your reputation by letting ordinary gasoline slacken the speed and cut down the power of your emergency car? Or would you select the finest gasoline money could buy so your police cars could answer emergency calls at top speed so they could catch any criminal getaway car in a chase? Many of your brother police chiefs would advise you that Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline has the reputation in police circles of being the fastest most efficient gasoline made. The police chiefs of Los Angeles, Oakland, Berkeley, or Maricopa County, Arizona, and many, many other cities and counties use Rio Grande Cracked gasoline exclusively because it comes as close as possible to perfect performance. Yet, it fits expense budgets. For the cost records of these cities show year after year that Rio Grande Cracked gasoline delivers more miles as well as faster miles from every gallon. Every motorist can get this same gasoline that powers more police and emergency cars than any other brand from the independent Rio Grande dealer in your neighborhood. Ask for Rio Grande Crack and enjoy the thrill of police car performance in your car. It is now our pleasure to present Mr. W.A. Huggins on the staff of Chief Sears of the San Diego Police Department. Mr. Huggins. Every man who plots a holdup or some other crime invariably thinks he is smart enough to get away with it. He knows that in crimes committed in the past, the law has captured the criminals in practically every case. But always he is going to be the exception. We have confronted scores of lawbreakers captured by our police officers, and always they are baffled at the ease with which we tracked them down and blew up their alibis. They marvel at the apparent uncanny ability shown by the police in singling the right man out of the many who might have committed the crime. The secret of our success is simply that we take advantage of the mistakes every lawbreaker makes. Carefully as he plans his crime, there's always some detail he overlooks. Our job is simply to discover these mistakes and use common sense. There are always one or more clues to lead us to the criminals. The case you will now hear, for example, was carefully planned and daringly executed. But the hold-up men made plenty of mistakes. They were not smart robbers. They were stupid. All criminals are stupid. 
The story that follows is proof that crime cannot pay. Shortly after midnight, in the middle of May 1929, two shadowy figures stealthily work at the lock of the service entrance of a Ford agency in San Diego. None of these keys seem to fit. That's funny. Well, here's the last one. I'll try it. Nope. Hey, give me that hammer. What are you going to do? I'm going to bust this padlock open. Oh, you're nuts. You'll wake up the whole town. Ah, listen. We're getting in there, ain't we? And I don't care how we do it. Yeah, but maybe somebody will hear us. Well, if anybody comes snooping around, just get them. I'll take care of them. Go on, give me that hammer. Well, all right, here you are. Swell. Here goes. Yeah, that's more like it. Hmm, did the business all right. Sure, it did the business. That's the way to get things done. Force, my boy. There once was a mug that lived in the old days by the name of Alexander the Great. He found that out. When he couldn't untie a knot, he cut it with his sword. Yeah? Well, let's drop the history lesson and get into this joint. Here, give me a hand on this door. There's no watchman here. I told you I cased the joint, didn't I? Yeah. Well, you heard me. There ain't no watchman. Okay. Hey, douse that flashlight, will you? You want to invite the whole world to this party? But how can you see what you want? Ah, the street light shines right through the showroom good enough, don't it? You're going to take a new car? Sure. Right off the floor. Yeah, but that's taking a chance. They can spot a new car. Not when we get through with it. I think it'd be a better idea to take one of these into service. Ah, listen, dummy. They wouldn't be there if it was running good, would they? No. Uh, we've got to be sure we got a good car. Well, here we are. What looks good to you? Well, how about that coupe over there? Nah. I think we better take that roadster. Ah, oh, that's too flashy. Well, we'll fix that. You see, we can drop the windshield on the roadster and shoot straight ahead. If we take a coupe, we'd have to take that windshield out. And that might attract attention. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, come on, hop in. She got gas? Careful with that light. Yeah, she's quarter full. Let's have those four keys of yours. Okay, here you are. Find one to fit? Yeah, here it is. Okay, let's go. San Diego for the stolen car, Cochran and Colson are working on it in the garage back of their bungalow. Finally, after two days of secret activity, they pridefully view the result of their labor. Hmm, that's a big difference from the shiny gray job we drove off to Florida the other night, eh, Marty? Yeah. Nobody could call it a professional paint job, but it's just what we want. Hmm, and that rotten black paint makes it look like any number of other heaps around the town. Oh, say, listen... Don't you think we'd better put some damp rags on the headlights and radiator so they'll rust? Yeah, that's a good idea. Now, listen. The way I figure is this. That wide stretch of road along the National City Dyke is the best place to pull a job. Yeah, there's not much traffic there. What time does the money car come through? Well, it leaves Caliente in time to get to the bank in town here around noon. Hmm. 
sort of come along and, well, about, about 11.30. We'll knock over Monday, see, you know, when they're bringing in the tape for the weekend. Figure we'd have much trouble with the Mex guards? Nah, there's only two of them. They bring the dough over in a coop. They've never been knocked over before, have they? No, that's why they're so careless, I guess. But if they get tough, why, we'll just bump them off. Oh, gee, we don't have to do that, do we? Might. What of it? Ain't a hundred grand worth of beef? Yeah, I guess so. But... Remember that mug Alexander? He had the right idea. Cut right through the knot. May 20th, 1929, Nemesio Monroy and J.V. Barrigo, two Mexican police officers, call at the Agua Caliente Casino for the weekend receipts. Well, here it is, boys. How much dinero we take today, boss? Almost a hundred grand. Madre the deal. hundred thousand dollars? Oh, oh. Make a nice present for my woman and me, eh? <laughs> Yeah, so it would. But don't you go waltzing off with that dough, or I'll beat your ears in the messy Oh, do not worry. <laughs> By the way, how's your wife? Oh, pretty good. Will not be long now before we have another little one. Is that so? You're acquiring quite a family in the messy Oh, see, see. Four already, all boys. And soon it will be five. <laughs> the messy He's raising his own army for the next revolution. <laughs> well, you better get started with the dough, boys. See, si, muy pronto. Adios, senor. Goodbye, boys. Parked on a side street from which they can see far up the highway along the National City Dike, Cochran and Colson await their victims. Ignorant of their peril, they are approaching, laughing and joking as they drive through Tijuana, bumping along the dirt road to the customs gate. They pass over the line, through San Isidro, and on International City. Hey, it's 11.30. Maybe we missed them. Yeah, how could we? We've been here since 8 o'clock this morning. Well, maybe they went the other way, through Chula Vista. Hey, listen, I tell you, this is the route they take. You don't think I'd go into this thing before I checked every angle, do you? Well, no, hey. but... That looks like them now. Yeah. See that big coop coming down the road? Yeah. Yep. Them's the boys. All right, kick that motor over. Okay. All right. Pull over there and get in right behind them. Boy, oh boy, what a break this is, eh? Not another car in sight. Swell. Now, just like this. Keep that distance behind them while I turn this heater on them. That pulled him over, all right. Yeah. Hey, just a minute. Just a minute. What's the matter? This tomcat's jammed. Wait till I clear it. Ah, darn it. All right, there it is. Okay, let's go. You take that side, and I'll take this one. Come on now. Hey, what do you men want from us? All right, boys. Hand over that dough. Caramba, what's the big idea of shooting at us? Let him have it, Lee. Let him have it. But, Marty. Now, I... Shut up. Let him have it, I say. Oh, oh, what's you're... the matter, Marty? Oh, you darn fool. You didn't have to hit me to jam. I'm sorry, Marty. Well, it could have been worse. Oh, you only got me in the arm. There's the satchel. Come on, grab it. Okay. Okay. 
how to duck these overalls and dark glasses and get me to a doctor. Gee, Marty, it was a crying shame to bump off those poor devils. Hey, what are you bawling about? You nearly murdered me, didn't you? Oh, well, it wasn't necessary to kill those guys. They didn't have a chance. You remember that mug Alexander the Great? He turned on the heat first and talked afterwards. Detective Bureau, Sergeant Kelly speaking. Yeah? Where? On the National City Dyke. Yeah? Okay. Be right out. What's up? Murder, O'Connor. Come on. Now, did any of you people see this happen? Uh, no, 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 sir, no, sir. That is, uh, yes. Well, now, which do you mean? Well, well you see, me, me and my friend George, uh, when we was over there in the dumps and we done here to shoot. Well, what did the men look like that did the shooting? Uh, well, I, I couldn't exactly tell, mister. Uh, what do you mean you couldn't tell? Didn't you see them? Well, sir, I, I did, and again, I didn't know. Well, what do you mean? Well, well sir, you, you see, when when these here now bullets started whizzing around, why... George and me, we, we just naturally hid under some tin roof until it was all over. Well, didn't you see anything? Well, I, I done saw them drive away. How many were there? Well, the, the two. That, that's all I seen. What were they dressed like? Well, I don't take no particular notice. Uh, seems like they had on these here now jumper things like the garage mechanic wear. Anything else? Well, sir, let me see now. If I, if I just remember correctly, they... They had on them uh, sunglasses. Did yeah. you get their license number? No, sir. I wasn't paying no notice to license number about that time. Well, what kind of a car were they in? Well, it seemed to me like it was uh, an old Ford. A Ford? What color? Well, uh, kind of dark, I guess. Uh, a black, maybe. Anything else? Well, I expect that's about all I know. Anyone else see this happen? Maybe your friend George saw something else. George? Oh, no, sir. George, he, he didn't see nothing. Oh, we want to talk to him. Where is he? George? <laughs> George, he's still hiding under that tin roof and over in the dump. Meager are the clues the police have on which to work. Old black boards are under suspicion, but finding the right one is as easy as finding the proverbial lost needle. Things look black for the police when help comes from an unexpected source. Well, this is a tough one. Yeah, it sure is. Two guys dressed in jumpers and dark glasses and an old Ford. Hmm. I'll find a hundred people answering that description in a half an hour. Yeah, and you won't be any closer to the right ones. That's right. Detective Bureau, Sergeant Kelly speaking. This is Yeah? Yeah? What's that? Well, a couple of men drove up near my house about noon today in an old Ford. Yes? Well, they uh, met by another car, which, uh, uh, well, they took them away. Uh, one of them uh, seemed to be wounded. The Ford is still parked here in the suite. What's the address, Mr. Hartel? Uh, it's Martin uh, B. Thanks. We'll be right out.
Now, what did these men look like, Mr. Hartell? Well, uh, they were both about uh, 25 years old. One was around uh, five feet, five inches tall, and uh, the other one was uh, maybe two inches taller. Uh, how were they dressed? Oh, head on some old clothes. Could and... you identify them if you saw them again? Absolutely. Well, here's hoping you get a chance to. Well, let's have a look at this car. Hmm. Dealer's license. Is that number on your hot sheet, O'Connor? Well, let's see. Yeah, that's the number of the car stolen from the Ford agency last week. But this is an old Ford. The one that was stolen was a new car. Oh, just a minute. So this is a new car, too. Take a look at the position of the brake and gear shift. Well, this is a new car. Paid it over, huh? Sure. Hey, wait a minute. What's this? What? Something's stuffed into the corner under the brake pedal. Well, the jumpers and the dark glasses. Well, uh, what's that mean, hey? That means this is the car the murderers used, Mr. Hartell. murder remains a mystery. Although Kelly and O'Connor have a slight description of the criminals, they have nothing definite to go on. But the fact that a machine gun was used starts them on an inquiry among underworld characters. Well, Kelly, I got a lead. You have? What yeah, I found out that Ted Barnes has a submachine gun. Or at least, he did have one a week ago. Ted Barnes? Oh, yes, he's that bootlegger up the line, isn't he? Yeah, that's the guy. But as I remember him, he, he doesn't fit the description of these mugs. He's about six feet tall, and he's fat. The guys that did this job were both short. They were young fellas, too. Sure, that's right. But Barnes might have lent them his machine gun, mightn't he? Yeah. Well, it won't hurt to go up there and look Barnes joint over. Okay, let's do that. idea. Who are you? We're police officers. Oh, yeah? Yeah. See that? That buzzer don't mean anything. There's a private house and you can't come in without a warrant. Well, we thought of that. Here's the warrant. Oh. Well, I... Come on, Kelly. Oh, I see you've got a hospital here. What's that? Look, there's a guy in bed over there in the corner. Keep your hands off that gap, mister. I got you covered. Get that automatic out of his reach, Kelly. Right. What's your name, pal? What's the matter with you? He won't talk, yeah? Well, I'll take a look. What's the matter with him, Kelly? Bullet wound in his arm. This looks like our man. Who is this guy? I ain't saying nothing. Well, you're Barnes' wife, aren't you? Yeah. Well, where is he? I don't know. So he and this bird held up the money car, and he ducked out and left you to care for his pal, eh? That's a lie. Well, that's the way it looks to me. Ted didn't have a thing to do with no holdup. What about this man here? Who is he? Let him tell you. Did he hold up the money car? I don't know nothing about it. Well, we'll have to arrest you, too. What for? Well, we'll book your friend here on suspicion of murder, and we'll book you on... You uh... can't arrest me. I ain't done a thing. Looks to me like you're an accessory after the fact. At least that's the way we're going to arrest you. (laughs) 
Hartel positively identifies the wounded man as one of the two he saw leave the Ford two days before. Police cover the town and discover the bungalow court in which an apartment was taken by Joseph Renanet, who answers the wounded man's description. However, effects discovered in the apartment identify Renanet as one Marty Colson, an ex-convict on parole, after serving part of a sentence on an arson charge committed in Los Angeles County. Papers in the apartment show that his partner is one Lee Cochran. Mrs. Barnes is the important link in the chain of suspects. Police question her closely. Now, look here, Mrs. Barnes. We've got this case just about so Yes, it isn't going to do you any good to hold out on us. Listen, I don't know anything about it. Now, that's not true, Mrs. Barnes. It is true. I don't know a thing. Now, we know that Ted wasn't in on this job. What are you trying to do? Trap me? Why, of course not. You told us yourself he had nothing to do with it. And that's true, isn't it? Sure, it's true. But Marty Colson, the man you were caring for in your house yesterday, he was on the job. I don't know. How did you find out his name? Oh, never mind. And uh, Lee Cochran, his pal, was the other bandit. We know that. So, Marty Cochran, eh? Looks like it. Said he wouldn't open his mouth. Now, look here, Mrs. Barnes, you're a woman. Did you know that one of those four Mexican officers who was murdered the other day left a wife that was about to have a baby? Is that the truth? On the level. Oh, we know Ted didn't do the job, but we want to get Cochran. We want to see some sort of justice done. We can't give that poor Mexican woman back her husband, but at least we can make Cochran pay for the penalty of his crime. Now, if you were in that poor woman's place, and if Ted had been murdered, you'd want to see justice done now, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I guess I would. All right. You can help us. Oh, we want Cochran. Where did he go? Well, I think he went up to L.A. He and Ted. Oh, I mean he... Oh, so Ted is with him, huh? Listen, you said you wanted Cochran. I ain't talking about Ted. I've got constitutional rights. You can't make me testify against my husband. Furnished with a description of Cochran and Barnes, the sheriff's office of Los Angeles County takes the two men into custody within 24 hours. For more than two months, while they were awaiting trial and all through the courtroom proceedings, Colson refused to talk. He makes the communications that are necessary in writing. But from the moment of his arrest to the moment when he stands before the judge to receive his sentence, Silent Marty, as he has come to be called, has never uttered a word. Martin Colson, Lee Cochran. You've heard the jury's verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. Before I sentence you, have you anything to say? Nothing to say. I suppose it is useless to ask you, Martin Colson, if you want to break the silence you've obstinately maintained throughout the trial. No, Judge. I have got something to say. Before you sentence me... I've got something important to say, Your Honor. I want to die. I want to pay my debt to society. Let me go, Judge. I'm the one you want. I plan the whole thing. Hang me, Judge, and let my partner go. But Colson's magnanimous offer is refused. And he and Cochran are both sentenced to life imprisonment in Folsom Prison. Ted Barnes is sentenced to a year in the county jail as an accomplice after the fact. 
In Folsom, Martin Colson retains his grim silence, only rarely talking to his fellow prisoners. His nickname of Silent Marty follows him behind the grim gray walls of the northern prison. Desperate, morbidly brooding, Colson determines to beat the raft. For months, he works secretly on a crude diving apparatus, and then one day he attempts to escape through the powerhouse water intake pipe into the prison moat. But his apparatus fails to function, and he is dragged from the moat half drowned. There's a hitch in solitary for his attempted break. But as soon as he's back in the cell block, he and his cellmate set about fashioning two pistols from the bits of metal they conceal in the machine shop. Then, on the morning of February 27, 1933, as the men are marching to their daily task, What's the matter, Marty? Oh, oh, I'm sick. Oh. Hey, keep going there. What's holding up the line? My pal here, sick. Come on, don't go. Oh, quit prodding me, will you? Oh, on the up and up. I got cramped something awful. You better let me take him to the hospital. Okay, Paul. Oh. Work like a charm. Yeah, but you better keep on looking. Hey. You hold up the guard in the hospital? Yeah. And I'll make the operator call the warden down here. Yeah. If anybody gets fancy, bump a ball. You know what that means? Do they catch us? Sure I do. But remember that mug, Alexander the Great, right through the knot. Okay, okay. Here we are. You all set? Let's go. What do you want? Oh. My partner here, sick. Oh. Come this way, then we'll... Oh. All right, grab his gun. Okay. I'll get the operator. Okay. What are you... Shut up, you. Don't ask no questions. Call the warden. And tell him to come down here right away. Tell him it's important. But look here. George, I tell you, will you? You're breathing your last this minute. Oh, all right. Hello, Warden. This is the hospital. Can you come down right away? One of the men is very sick. Yes, it's important. Please hurry. That's enough, that's enough. You don't have to cry over the telephone. Don't touch that board. It's hot, I say. I'll get into that other room. The Warden comes? Yeah. Guy here nearly tipped us off, but it's okay. The warden tried to call back. When he doesn't get an answer, he'll think that guy's awful sick and he'll be down on the double. Good. Then he'll listen to us. He'll hand over the keys and give us a safe conduct out of this hole. Yeah, yeah. He ain't got no guts. Wardens never have. No. It's strong guys like us. Yeah. Like that Alexander mug that gets places in this world. Yeah. You bet I'm telling you, pal. Listen. What's that? The prison siren there. Why? They'll never get me. Okay, okay, you win. Where's your boss? He, what? I guess he shot himself. He said you'd never get him. See, and he was a swell guy, too. Lots of education. Say, do any of you guys know who this mug Alexander is he was always talking about? Thank you, Mr. Huggins. Up 
like these radio crime dramas, you'll be interested in reading the Calling All Cars News. This month's issue illustrates 15 free gifts for boys and girls. Get this unique publication free wherever Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline is sold. And wherever you find Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline, you'll find Sinclair Motor Oils, too. These independent dealers know that Sinclair has pioneered most of the refinements recently announced by other oil companies. It was Sinclair who perfected the de-waxing and de-jellying processes to purify motor oil. Modern high-compression engines need Sinclair motor oils to ensure continuous lubrication of those fast-moving, finely-fitted parts. As one of the world's largest makers of lubricants, Sinclair engineers work with every automotive manufacturer to develop perfect lubricants. The manufacturer of your car has specified a Sinclair oil or lubricant for every moving part. And your Rio Grande Cracks gasoline dealer is equipped to give you this Sinclair scientific lubrication. San Diego Police calling all cars, attention all cars, cancellation broadcast 7. Starting a hold up and murder on National City Dyke. Sexless case are now in custody. That's all. Frederick Lindsley bidding you good night for the Rio Grande Oil Company. Listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast is a unique experience. You will be able to listen to several old-time radio shows in one episode. From Our Miss Brooks to Gunsmoke, from comedy to drama and even science fiction, it's all here. New free episode every Friday, and you can even subscribe for only 99 cents a month to double your listening pleasure. So make sure you click follow us and find us on Facebook. So relax and enjoy the shows. Have you heard the whistler? I'm the whistler. I must kill Henry. I must kill Henry. That was Ambrose Brent, official of an airplane plant. He found strange notes in the night. You better get away, Ambrose. Take a good long rest. The sooner the better. That was Henry Pierce, Ambrose's partner. He was growing fearful of Ambrose. Get this prescription filled, Ambrose. It'll make you sleep. And you'd better get away. And that was Ambrose's friend, Dr. Fenwick. And this is Ambrose's wife, Doris. What's happened, Ambrose? Look at me. What have you done? Another Saturday night, and again, CBS presents The Whistler. And I, the Whistler, know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales, many secrets hidden in the hearts of men and women who stepped into the shadows. I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. So I tell you tonight the strange story of Notes in the Night. 
A storm rages wildly over the countryside. Beyond that long row of trees stands a lonely house half hidden in the darkness of the night. Not a single light appears from any of its many windows. But up there in that room with the large window, a man stirs fretfully in his sleep. The man is Ambrose Brent, an official of an airplane plant. But it's not the storm that stirs his uneasy slumber. It's something else, something far more sinister, something that has happened many times in the past few weeks. He stirs again, moans loudly, and suddenly sits bolt upright in his huge bed. Who's there? Who's there, I say? It's funny. I swear I heard something. I swear I felt someone in the room. Turn on the lamp, Ambrose. You'll see. I can't imagine what's happening to me. It's just nerves, I guess. It's just... Good Lord. Another note. Another one. I must kill Henry. I must kill Henry. That's the third note this week in my own handwriting. I've got to do something. I've got to tell someone. Henry's my best friend. Oh, it's nerves. I know. I'll call Dr. Fenwick. Doc will know what's wrong. A Fairchild uh, 1834W. Yes. Hello? Is uh, Dr. Fenwick in? Walnut 2380. Walnut 2380. That's Henry Pierce's number. I can't go there. If there's anything to this, I must stay away from Henry. I've got to see Doc Fenwick. Wait till morning. I've got to talk with you. Of course, Ambrose. Why not? What's up? Something's wrong with me. Terribly wrong. Oh, yeah? Read this note. Note? Hmm. I must kill Henry. Henry? I must kill Henry? I don't get it. What is this to do with your trouble? I wrote it. You did? Well, really? And uh, why did you write it? I don't know. I don't remember writing it, but I know it's in my own writing. And that's it. Who's Henry? Henry Pierce. Who else? <clears throat> Have you been drinking, Ambrose? Not a drop, I swear. Well, uh, look, old boy, you'd best sit down. Ah, that's better. Now, uh, when did you write this? I don't know. I found six notes just like that. Six? Where? On the nightstand beside my bed. Are you sure it's your writing? Well, doesn't it look like it? Yeah, certainly does. Uh, tell me, how many hours have you been putting in at the plant lately? Oh, too many. I'd better give you a thorough going over, Ambrose. But why should I write such notes? I don't know. Mine plays queer tricks on us sometimes, under undue strain. You'd better slow down. That's my best prescription. Take it easy. Get out of town as soon as possible. Yes. Yes, I guess you're right. Here, I'll give you something for your nerves. Thanks. Doctor, you... You don't think I'm losing my mind. Do you? No, Ambrose. You're just terribly upset. Ah, yeah. Here's your prescription. You better get it filled tonight. Thanks. I'll leave Saturday. You don't think there's anything wrong with me? Mentally, I mean. <laughs> if you're in town after Saturday night, I'll drag you out with my own two hands. 
Good night, Doctor. Good night, Ambrose. Sleep tight. And uh, don't think about anything. Ambrose, why don't you take a little vacation? What do you mean, Henry? Have you been talking to Doc Fenwick? Fenwick? Of course you have. He told you all about it. About what? I feel better than I've felt in years. I'm in excellent condition. Do you hear? Certainly I hear. What's wrong with you, Ambrose? Nothing. If you act like this, I'll be forced to agree with Doc Fenwick. What has he said? He just said you were overworked. Well, he doesn't know everything. Ambrose, you'll please me very much if you'll take a little vacation. Did Doc Fenwick tell you what was bothering me? Yes, he did, Ambrose, and I think you'd better get away as soon as possible. Oh, I'm sorry, Ambrose, but don't worry. Everything will be all right. Then you... You're not worried? You're not upset about it? Certainly not. Why should I be? Please believe me, Henry. I wouldn't do such a thing. I, I've never even thought of such a thing. I'd kill myself first. You you do believe me, don't you? Huh? Why, of course I do. Of course. I wouldn't kill you. I have no reason. Shall I drive you home, Ambrose? No. No, I'll get home. I'd better leave tomorrow, hadn't I? I'll go up to my place in the mountains. There's no one there. My wife has gone to Palm Beach. Yes, Ambrose. You better leave tomorrow. Yes. Doris will be back from Palm Beach in three weeks. That'll be long enough. I'm sure you'll find things different when you return. Quite different. Good night, Henry. Goodbye, Ambrose. Sleep tight and don't think about anything. Ambrose goes home to bed. The clock ticks off the eerie hours. The clock chimes two, and suddenly Ambrose stirs fretfully in his slumber. He wakes and again sits up staring into the inky blackness of his silent room. <laughs> Turn on the light, Ambrose. Turn on the light. Who is it? Who's there? Jameson! Jameson! I've got to get hold of myself. This is ridiculous. Jameson! I'm losing my mind. I must be. Did you call me, sir? Yes. Yes, I called you. I thought I heard a scream. A scream? No, I... Uh... What time is it? It's long after midnight, sir. It's two o'clock. Two o'clock? Oh, pack my bag. Order my plane to be ready in 30 minutes. Where are you going, sir? It doesn't matter. Uh, yes, sir. I've got to get away. I've got to. 2.15. I must get away. I must. I'm mad. I must be. Jameson! Jameson! The car is at the door, sir. Then come on with the bag. Where are you going, sir? I don't know where I'm going, Jameson. Understand? Yes, sir. I understand. Good night, Jameson. Goodbye, sir. Is that you? What on earth are you doing here at 2.30 in the morning? What's wrong? I say, what's wrong with you? I must kill Henry. 
Ambrose, put up that gun. No, no, don't, Ambrose. Don't. I must kill Ambrose. Don't, you're mad. Don't come near me. Don't. Ambrose. I want Dr. Fenwick in New York. Fairchild, 1834W. Please. It's uh, Dr. Fenwick's residence. Uh, make it person to person. This is Crestline, 142. I've got to talk to someone. I've got to. I can't stand this... this silence. This, this being alone. Hello? I see. No, no, never mind. I'll call tomorrow. Put up your hands. Don't move. Doris. Ambrose. What on earth? What are you doing here? What? What are you doing here? I thought you were in Palm Beach. What are you doing up here in the mountains? I changed my mind. I decided to come up here. Why didn't you let me know? I didn't think about it. I was going to phone you in the morning. Well, how did you find time to get away from the plant? I thought you were too busy to eat. Well, I... Uh, I decided I needed to rest, so I... Uh, it's an early hour to arrive. 5 a.m. Is it? Well, you... Uh, you see, it occurred to me on the spur of the moment I, I flew up. Well, what are you staring at? I'm not staring, Andrew. What's wrong? What's happened? Nothing. Uh, I came up here because... Because What? What are you talking about, Ambrose? Are you ill? Yes. Yes, that's it. I, I'm ill, very ill. Yes. Get the doctor. What doctor? There's no doctor near here. Get Dr. Fenwick. He knows. Dr. Fenwick? He's the only one who knows. Except Henry. Are you out of your mind? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Do you hear? It's a lie, a lie. I'm not crazy. I won't be crazy. Oh. Oh, Doris, what's happened to me? What's happened? Oh, poor Henry. <laughs> Ambrose, look at me. What have you done? What have you done? Let me alone. I'm going to bed. I, I want to get some sleep. Oh, oh, I've done nothing. Nothing. What's that? Wake up, Doris. What? Hmm? That noise. I didn't hear him. Oh, I did. Hear it? There it is again. There's someone coming there. They are at the door. There's no one. You see? I'm not here. I haven't been here. You don't know where I am. Do you understand? Yes, yes, I understand. Doc. Doc, it's you. Oh. Hello, Doris. Hello, Doctor. Did you get my call? You did, didn't you? Now, Ambrose, take it easy. Everything's going to be all right. Don't get excited. All right. What do you mean? You've got a 50 to 1 chance to pull out of this. Pull out? Certainly. I know you're mentally upset. You have been for weeks. I'll swear to that. I have records. I'll appear on your side. You'll get out of it. Out of it? Out of what? You're not a killer. Killer? 
What did you say? What did you say? I said you weren't a killer. I understand your case perfectly. Yes. I'm sorry to say Henry is dead. He died about 2.30 in the morning, as closely as can be determined. From all indications, the police think he committed suicide. But he didn't. He didn't. You know he didn't. He may have. Then why did you come here? I thought this is where you'd come, and I was right. What does this mean, Doctor? It means that if Henry's dead, I killed him. I must have. Must have? Are you positive? Yes, who else could it be? I've written notes to myself for weeks. The doc knows. He, he knows all about it. Do you? Yes. But I didn't think it would come to this. But why did you do such a thing? He was your best friend. I know it. Dead, I, I must have done it. But why did you do it? I don't know. Now, now, please, please, don't upset me. He wasn't responsible. I am responsible. I did it. And I'm going back. No, Ambrose. Stay here till I send for you. Have a talk with you. No. I'm going back this morning. I can't believe such a thing. Doris, why do you look at me like that? Please, I, I don't know why I did it. Oh, Doris, don't you believe me? I... I don't know. I don't know. Tell her, Doc. Tell her. Tell her what? Tell her the truth. Tell her I didn't do it for a reason. Explain to her how it was. You know how it happened. Go on, tell her. Tell her. Come now, old boy. This is not helping you. What'll they do with me? Why? Now, look, it's, it's early yet. It's nine o'clock. You'd better try to get some sleep in this afternoon. I'll take you back to the city and make arrangements for you to go someplace where you can have a nice rest. What kind of a place? Why, uh, rest home. I know a nice, quiet place. You don't mean a rest home. I know what you're thinking. You mean an asylum. You think I'm insane, both of you. Now, now, Ambrose. Well... Why don't you say it? Ambrose, if you don't control yourself, something will happen to you. I won't go on a, to an asylum. Do you hear? Do you hear me? Stop it. I won't stop it. You don't care about me. You're both cold and heartless. You want me to be locked up, both of you. Ambrose, please. Please, calm down. Keep away from him, Doris. See? Keep away from him. He's a dangerous lunatic. A killer. You don't calm down. I'll have to use force. You try it. You just try it. I'm going out that door, and don't you try to stop me. You run away like this, you stamp yourself as a hopeless lunatic. They'll find you. They won't find me, and I won't be locked up. Ambrose, please. No, I'll kill myself first. You're a fool, Ambrose. A mad fool. really made a mess of things. <laughs> You're a fugitive now. They'll throw out a dragnet. You'll have to run and hide and sneak, afraid of every shadow. You'll have to run, Ambrose. Hide and sneak and run for the rest of your days. <laughs> Ambrose Brent, <laughs> fugitive. Lunatic. 
lunatic. Padded cell. Lunatic. <laughs> hurry, Ambrose, hurry. More gas. Step on it. What's that? A sign, Ambrose, and a red flag swinging in the road. Two men in black rubber coats. Too late to turn around now. What's your hurry, mister? I'm pretty fast for a storm like this, ain't you? Who are you? What do you want? State police. What are you stopping me for? We're stopping everybody. Why? We're looking for someone. Looking for someone? Who? A fugitive. A murderer? We didn't say what he'd done. Let's have a look at your driver's license. Driver's license? Why, I, uh... That's funny. I must have... I left it in your other suit, huh? Step <laughs> out. Let's have a look at you. Hey, hey, you, come back here. Oh, what's eating him? He must be nuts. Well, I could have plugged him, but I just shot in the air. Just as well. He wasn't Mike Coretti. Mike could make two of him. Know where you are now? Recognize this room? That's right. It's the room of death where Henry was murdered the night before. His body has been removed, but the pad on his desk is still there, smeared with a large brown stain. There are five people in the room, Dr. Fenwick and Doris Brent, Jameson the Brent's butler, Inspector Fields, and Carnes of the district attorney's office. The inspector is speaking. District attorney Carnes had an appointment with Henry Pierce. It was he who discovered the body this morning. Pierce had been dead about seven hours. Right, Mr. Carnes? That's right, Inspector Fields. We attempted to reach Mr. Brent and were told by Jameson, the butler, that he'd left town at two in the morning. He told us about the place in the mountains and uh, there we reached you, Mrs. Brent. You've no idea where your husband is, Mrs. Brent? Not the slightest. Your butler said you had gone to Palm Beach. Yes, I started for Palm Beach, but I changed my mind and went to the mountains. And your husband came there last night? Yes, it was about five in the morning. Nine o'clock. I flew up to the cabin, got there a few minutes before nine. Why did you go there, Doctor? Well, I advised Ambrose to take a rest. He's been working too hard and was heading for a nervous breakdown. When I learned of Henry's death, I went to tell him about it. Doctor, you visited Henry Pierce here last evening. I did. He phoned me to come over. I got here about 11. He'd made a new will and wanted me to witness it and asked if I would serve as executor. I read it and signed it. I see. In whose favor was the will drawn? Well, the old will left everything to Ambrose. Henry had no living relative. But because of Ambrose's mental condition, he decided to leave everything to Doris, Mrs. Brent. That's correct. I found the will on the desk. Was Ambrose Brent your patient? Yes, of course. What was his trouble? Too much work. He had a great responsibility. Did you think he was losing his mind? No. Did he think so? Well, he was terribly upset. He'd been having hallucinations. Doctor, when was the last time you saw him prior to finding him in the mountains? The evening before Henry died. I wrote him a prescription. Mm -hmm. And where did you go after you left Henry Pierce last night? I told my servants that I was going out of town for a holiday, but it was storming so when I left Henry that I decided to stay at my club. Mrs. Brent, did your husband and Mr. Pierce ever quarrel? Not to my knowledge. They were the best of friends. I see. Have you told us all you know, Dr. Fenwick? 
No. Then I think you should. What was it that bothered Ambrose Brent? Well, he said he had been writing himself notes. They were all alike in his own handwriting and all said the same thing. I must kill Henry. I didn't know this. Certainly not. That was the patient's private business. I thought that if I could get him away for a rest, he'd pull out of it. There you are, Carnes. Must have been on his mind. Yes, but what's the motive? An unbalanced mind that doesn't always need a motive. Then you think Ambrose did it? He loved Henry like a brother. If he did it, he was completely out of his mind. Believe me. Ambrose! What? Well, thank heaven you finally came to your senses. Come in, Mr. Brent. I suppose you want to see me? I'm Inspector Fields, Police Department. This is Mr. Carnes of the District Attorney's Office. Yes, I know Mr. Carnes. I thought you'd gone on a little vacation, Mr. Brent. I had gone, but not on a vacation. Mr. Pierce told me you'd gone for a couple of weeks. I was gonna, going on a vacation, but something changed my mind. Oh? What was that? You know. You know why I've come back. Henry's dead and I killed him. When did you kill him? I don't know. Must have been last night. Why did you do it? I wish I knew. I recall neither the crime nor the motive. But I'm sure I did it. Why are you so sure you did it? Because of these notes, six of them. I've been writing notes to myself for weeks. Read them. Are they... Are they in your own handwriting? Certainly. But I don't remember writing a one. I must have some form of amnesia. Mm -hmm. When I heard Henry was dead, I... I tried to run away. I couldn't stand the thought of an asylum, but... The faster I ran, the more I hated myself, so I came back to get it over with. It's a great relief. Now, now, Mr. Brent, pose yourself. Mr. Brent, did you know that Henry Pierce made a new will last night, leaving his estate to your wife? What? Why should he do that? Well, perhaps he was worried about you. Of course. Why shouldn't he be? He knew I was acting strangely. Take a look at this will. Is that Henry's signature? Certainly. You're sure it isn't your right? It is not. I couldn't copy his signature if I tried. It's just a bunch of scrawls. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, Mr. Brent, uh, take this pad and write on it, I must kill Henry. Please, isn't that being a bit brutal? Go ahead, write it. There you are. Good. Now write the date on it. They weren't dated. Well, write it anyway. Write the date in numerals. Don't name them up. There it is. Thank you. Now, you write the same, Mrs. Brent. There. Thanks. Now, you, Dr. Bent. There you are. Mm-hmm. Well, the notes you've got were certainly in your own handwriting, Mr. Brent. I told you that. Why waste so much time? I came back to get it over with. I'm tired. Uh, there, you need some sleep, old man. You'll feel better after you had a nap. I can't sleep. I haven't slept for days. You should have. You've been taking that medicine I gave you. I didn't get it. I didn't want to sleep. I just wanted to get away. Here's the prescription still in my pocket. Prescription? May may I see it, please? Thank you. Hmm. What is this medicine, Doctor? It's intended to induce sleep. But he's so stubborn, he wouldn't take it. If he had, this wouldn't have happened. Inspector, take a look at this note written just now by Mr. Brent. I must kill Henry. And the date. 5-14-42. 
May the 14th, 1942. Now, Mrs. Brent's note. I must kill Henry. 5-14-42. The same. Mm -hmm. And now, Dr. Fenwick's. I must kill Henry. 14-5-42. Now read the date on the will. 14-5-42. What does that mean? There aren't 14 months. And now look at the date on this prescription. 14-5-42. Well, I'll be darned. What does it mean? It means that Dr. Fenwick was educated in Europe, where they indicate the day of the month first, then the month. The 14th day of the fifth month. What? Are you crazy? Are you accusing me of this? It means that the doctor, not Henry, wrote this will, and if he wrote the will, he must have killed Henry Pierce. And if he killed Henry, he must have had a motive. And I've guessed that motive. Are you out of your mind? What motive would I have? You also wrote those notes and left them for Ambrose to find. You're an expert at handwriting, Dr. Fenwick. You figured that Ambrose would be declared insane, and Henry's, as well as Ambrose's property, would go to Doris with you as executor in complete control. I don't believe it. Ridiculous. And this is what I hate to say at this moment, but I think it's true. Dr. Fenwick, tell him about you and Mrs. Brent. That's a lie. Tell him, Doctor. That's what's back of the whole thing. You're stuck. You might as well tell him. All right. All right, I wrote the will. I wrote the notes. I am in love with Doris. I have been for years. She was in love with me. Doris. I'm, I'm sorry, Henry. But she had nothing to do with Henry's death. Not a thing. I came here that night disguised as Ambrose. Henry didn't hear my voice. I only whispered. He thought it was you. That's all. Sorry, Doris. Stop it! Good Lord. Well, the doctor is dead. The doctor's dead, yes. But that's not all, not quite. There's something troubling the inspector, and you, Ambrose, and you too, Doris. How was it that Mr. Carnes first got wise to the doctor? How did the doctor slip up? How did he show his hand? I know. And so does District Attorney Carnes. Go ahead, Mr. Carnes. Tell us. Well, the doctor said he had gone to the cabin to tell Ambrose of Henry's death. He arrived at the cabin at 9 a.m. I didn't discover the body till 10 a.m. and gave strict orders that it was not to be announced until we'd inspected everything thorough. Therefore, the only way the doctor could have known about the murder was to have been present when it happened. So, you see, the doctor didn't go to the cabin to inform Ambrose. He went there to meet Doris. And when he was surprised by Ambrose, he used the death of Henry as an excuse for his coming. CBS has presented The Whistler. Original music for this production was composed and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Tonight's Whistler story was written and directed by J. Donald Wilson and originated from Columbia Square in Hollywood. Next week, same time... I, the Whistler, will return to tell you the incredible story of the draft of death. Good night.
This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. You boys and girls won't object to Grove's emulsified nose drops. There's nothing unpleasant about them. They don't run out of your nose and make you messy. They don't run down the back of your throat and make you sickish. What's more, they don't burn or sting the inside of your nose. They quickly check a head cold and yet do it in a nice way. These nose drops are something brand new and a big improvement on old-fashioned oil drops. Mother is interested in getting results when you have a cold in the head, and she'll get results much faster with Grove's emulsified nose drops. In every section of the country, Grove's emulsified nose drops are selling at an amazing rate. That's because they are better in every way. Tell Mother to procure a bottle at the corner drugstore. Grove's emulsified nose drops will surprise you with the way they look and act. These nose drops are white and creamy. They don't look, taste, or smell like medicine, yet they are highly effective. That's because they are medically superior, because they stay up in the nose. Any child can understand that nose drops that stay up in the nose will do more good than nose drops that run right out. Impress this fact upon Mother, and she will undoubtedly let you try these new type nose drops when you have a head cold or stuffed head. All drugstores sell Grove's emulsified nose drops, and they're really more economical than the old-fashioned kind because you get more for your money and because you can use less. Ask Mother to get a bottle today. Brothers Company presents the Pepsida program, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. Pepsida presents Philip Marlowe, Hollywood's famous private detective created by Raymond Chandler. Philip Marlowe, tough, cynical private eye of Murder My Sweet, the sardonic, case-hardened detective of the Brasher Doubloon, the Lady in the Lake, and the Big Sleep. You've seen him in action in all of those top-flight mystery pictures. Now, in order that you may continue to enjoy this exciting mystery series, Pepsodent brings you The Adventures of Philip Marlowe on the air with a cast of noted radio players and starring MGM's brilliant and dynamic young actor, Van Heflin. desert wind blowing into Los Angeles that evening. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that come down through the mountain passes and curl your hair, make your nerves jump and your skin itch. On nights like that, every booze party ends up in a fight, and neat little housewives feel the edge of a carving knife and study their husband's necks. Anything can happen when a Santa Ana blows in from the desert. I closed up my office early. I got tired of reading Philip Marlowe, private investigator, backwards in the ground glass of my office door. So I opened the door and closed it from the outside and locked it and went out to get a beer before I went up to my apartment. Uh, fill her up again, Mr. Marlin? Marlowe. Marlowe. Marlowe is a fish. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hey, 
Hey, you bartender. Give me another ride. That drunk again. What'd you expect in this business? Autograph hounds? Make it snappy, yeah? Be right with you, sport. I gotta draw this man a beer. Crowd loud, these stumble bumps that come in here. You got another customer back us. Hey, bud. You seen a lady in here lately? A lady? Tall, good-looking, brown hair, a print bolero jacket, and a blue silk dress. No, sir. No, sir. Nobody like cats, Ben. Ah, it's straight scotch, fast. Left my engine running out there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This slick-looking, sarcastic guy stepped up to the bar and drank his scotch whole. Then he turned to go out, and he stopped. The drunk was grinning at him. And then, without changing his grin, the drunk swept a gun from somewhere so fast it was just a blur coming out. Made a couple of hard snaps, and a little smoke curled. Very little. All right, show it, guys. Don't move. So long, Waldo. All right, don't move, you two. Oh, Waldo. But I made his nose bleed. So long, boys. Crank up. All right, get on that phone, kid. I'll get his license number. Holy smoke. Holy smoke. Not too late. Go away with this dead guy's car. Maybe he ain't dead. He's dead, all right. Where's your phone? This is for the police. The prowl car boys were there in about five minutes. Waldo was out of business, all right. And nothing in his pockets told who he was, but... He had about $700 on him. I told the cops what I knew, including about Waldo's tall, brown-haired, pretty girl in the bolero jacket. It was about 9 o'clock when I stepped out of the elevator in my apartment house and almost walked right into a tall, brown-haired, pretty girl in a bolero jacket, waiting for the elevator on my floor. Oh, excuse me. Just a minute, lady. I said, excuse me, I'm in a hurry. I'll keep you good enough Look, to you better out. not go outside in those clothes. Just what do you mean by telling me this? This isn't a make. You're in trouble. Trouble? Yeah, the cops are looking for you in those clothes. But I haven't done anything that's... I'm in room 41 across the hall now. I never collected an etching in my life. All right, I'll go with you. I'll go. I got to my room and rustled up some scotch and soda and brought the girl her glass. She had a small automatic in her hand. It jumped up at me, and her eyes were full of panic. I put down both glasses on the table slowly so that I wouldn't be misunderstood. Look, sister, maybe this wind has got you crazy, too. Don't move. Castle, don't move. A man just got shot in a bar down the street. Before he got it, he'd been asking about a tall, pretty girl with a bolero jacket, like yours. What do you look like, this man? Tall, 5'11", slim, dark, dark brown eyes with a lot of glitter, dark suit, white handkerchief in the breast pocket. And he must have seen you earlier tonight to know how you were dressed. Am I getting anywhere? He used to be my chauffeur. You had an appointment with him, didn't you? Why? Listen, he asked for you, didn't he? Yes, I had an appointment with him. He'd stolen something from me when he left three days ago. I was going to buy it back from him. Why didn't you tell the police? I couldn't tell them. It was valuable, wasn't it? Valuable enough for Walter to steal? $15,000. Oh, that's peanuts. But it wasn't the valuable. It meant something to me. The man I loved gave it to me, and now he's dead. He was a flyer shot down over Germany. I'll go back and tell my husband that. He probably hired you. He did? Well, how much is he paying me? And uh, where is this husband of yours? He's at a meeting. This late at night? He's a very important man. He's a hydroelectric engineer. I'll let you know that my husband oh, is one of Skip it. I'll take him out to lunch sometime and have him tell me himself. And about Waldo. Whatever he had on you is dead stock now, like Waldo himself. He's dead. Waldo's 
dead? Yes, sister, he's dead. Dead, dead, dead. Lady, he is dead. Oh. Now, scream, and I'll give you two black eyes. I'm not going to scream. Who about this? There's a dressing room behind that door. Hide there. Now, don't argue with me, do it. All right. to the door making a loud yawning sound. The backs of my hands were wet. I opened the door without a gun. That was a mistake. I certainly knew the gun I was looking into. A 22 target automatic that had already killed one man that night. And I knew the bald head and the flat, shiny eyes and the face like a poisonous lizard. Baldy put the muzzle of his gun lightly against my throat. I, I backed into the room and Baldy kicked the door shut. You alone? Look for yourself. I'm asking, not looking. I'm alone. You and that dumb bartender saw me dust off Waldo. What did Waldo do to you? Who's asking? Just making conversation. You still only on a bank job we did together. It's got me four years in Michigan pen. How is he? Dead. <laughs> I'm still good. Drunk or sober. Tell me why I came here, pal. You heard the barkeeper and me talking. I told him my name, where I lived. That's how, pal. I said, why? I skipped the hangman would ask you to guess why he's there. Well, you're pretty tough at that, ain't you? But you're swimming off, pal. All right, but you could get that gun out of my neck and try somewhere else. Oh, yeah, sure. Is this better? Is this all right? Just so it is in my neck. Save when, pal? Sure, party. I leaned against the gun. The door of the dressing room showed a crack of darkness. The crack widened. I began to shake a little. The girl came quietly into the room, but there was white all around her iris. She, she was scared. She had her gun in her hand, but I was sorry for her. Dead sorry. She tried to make the door scream either way. It'd be curtains for both of us. You scared, mister? You worried about any little thing? I couldn't talk. The girl floated in the air somewhere behind Baldy, and her horrified face was drifting toward us. My mouth was as cold and dry as yesterday's toast. Well, kid, how's it feel? You ready yet? Go on, say the word. Well, don't take all night about it if you're if you're going to do something about it. Why not, pal? I like this. Well, suppose I yell. Go ahead, yell. Go ahead. Put it on your hand. Hey, look. Oh. Thanks, sister. Thanks. That that buys me. Everything I have is yours now and forever. You flatter me no end, lady. I only punched you. All right now, get out of here while I call the cops down on this killer. Good night. Good hey, night. wait, wait. Leave that blur jacket here. Mark you for the cops. Oh, yes, here. Okay. See you again? What? Oh, I don't know. No, I guess not. After all, who am I to be the rival of a dead flyer? I'll see that the police get Jesse James here. Good night, lady. Yeah? Me, me? Yes, please. Oh, you. Again, huh? Sit in. I must talk to you. You want to know what happened at headquarters, huh? Yes. Well, I went down there with the law and gave him a story. I left you out of it. Thank you. You saved my life, so no one knows a thing about you. Well, incidentally, neither do I. Well, my name is Mrs. Frank Bosley. 212 Fremont Place, Olympia 24596. Is that what you want? I guess so. Well, there he is. Now, why did you really come back? 
I wanted my pearls. Pearls? Yes. Pearls, too. All right. Tell me about the pearls. We've had a murder and a beautiful mystery woman and a sadistic killer and a heroic rescue. Now we will have pearls. I was to buy them back from the man called Waldo. Well, I saw everything that came out of his pockets and there weren't any pearls. Could they be hidden in his apartment? It's possible. Waldo lived on the same floor you do in this apartment house. And why didn't I know him, at least by sight? He moved in last week and managed to get a sub-lab. Yeah, great, a sort of an amateur magician on the side, huh? It's getting rather late. Yeah. What about your husband this hot, mysterious night? He's still at his meeting. You could have brought him along. You could have sat in the back seat working out a problem in hydroelectrics while... While what? Well, I didn't have any answers that wouldn't sound cheap or just ridiculous if from the sophomore class and right now to... I had an unlit cigarette in my hand. I threw it out of the window. I took a hold of her and kissed her. She sat very still. I was shaking when I let go of her. Her voice trembled a little when she spoke. I meant you to do that. I wasn't always that way. Only since Johnny Dalmas was killed in the war, he gave me those pearls. Forty-one of them perfectly matched with the diamond propeller clasp. I'd have loved him if they'd been wooden deeds because he gave them to me. I love John the way you love just one time. You understand me? Hmm. What's your name? Lola. Lola, how did you explain a $15,000 pearl necklace to your husband? I told him they were imitation and I bought for myself. How did Walter latch on to him and what they stood for? Well, my husband was in Argentina, Walter and I go for long drives. I was restless and wretched because of Johnny. Sometimes Waldo and I had a little drink together, but that's all. But you confided in Waldo about this pearl. I was a fool. And when your husband came back, Waldo stole the pearls and offered to sell them back to you, or he'd tell Papa, huh? I was a fool. And now you think the pearls are upstairs in Waldo's apartment? I suppose it's a lot to ask. No, sweetheart. Huh? I've been paid. I'll go look. We're here, Not by name. I don't know. Mexican, South American, about uh, 45, small, iron gray hair, very neat, fawn-colored suit, wine-colored tie. No, I don't think I know such a man. Is he the one in all those rooms? Yeah. What's he have to say? Very little. In fact, nothing. He's dead. listening to that jittery, infuriating desert wind gallop around in the midnight streets. I just told her about the Latin-looking man I'd found in Walter's room in a very dead condition. I held her hands until they stopped trembling, and I gave her the few remaining details. He had a gun and a shoulder holster, but someone had strangled him before he could use it. Someone? Walter? Maybe. You see that convertible coupe two cars ahead of us? Been there for hours. He's there to fly park here to wait for you. Leon, the man in Waldo's room, came in that car, but according to the key containers he carried, that isn't his car. Whose car is it? Does it matter? Well, it belongs to a lady, according to the tag on the keys. A lady? Well, anyway, a woman, if you can split hairs. 
Eugenie Kolchenko. Hmm? In West Los Angeles? Never heard of her. Uh-huh. All right, well, you go home now, huh? What are you going to do? Drive that flossy convertible around, wave at my friends, impress people. You run along now. Me, I've got another date. Is it, please? Miss uh, Eugenie Kolchenko? Yes? What is it? Did you lose or misplace a pigeon gray convertible coupe? What are you saying? Now, don't be alarmed. I found it and I brought it home to you. Come in, please. This is a reward you wish. Shall we say... Snap that... out of it, dragon lady. Who was he? Who was who? A little guy, Leon. You loaned your car to. He's dead. Who was he? Oh, no, no. Oh, yes, yes. Eugenie. Darling, darling, come here, please. What's the matter, honey? Who is this man? I came about Miss Kolchenko's car. What about her car? The gentleman who borrowed it couldn't return it on account of he isn't alive. She's dead. Darling, she's dead. Well, that's putting it more bluntly, of course. There, then. Hmm? Completely. Who are you? Philip Marlowe, private investigator. My card. Mm-hmm. You told the police yet? Never do at once what can be deferred pending negotiations. He's something. I'm not negotiating. No, peachy. What do you know, Marlowe? A man named Waldo was shot in a bar tonight. I happened to have the inside as to who he was, and when I visited his apartment tonight, I found this Leo Balsanos dead. He wouldn't have had $500 in 20s on him, would he? No, but this Waldo had over $700 on him when he was killed at that cocktail bar, mostly in 20s. Oh. Is there a basis there for negotiations yet? Very well, Marlowe. I'm a married man. There certain unpaid bills for some stuff Miss Kolchenko here had charged to my account. But you told me I might charge to your account. All right, so I wasn't very bright. That might be the understatement of the decade, but go on. I had the unpaid bills safely in my briefcase. Somehow this Waldo had a chance to steal the briefcase. I hired Leon and gave him $500 to buy back those bills from Waldo. Instead, Waldo took Leon's dough and was forced to kill Leon in the process. And then he went out to keep another date and accidentally walked into an old pal hostile enough to blow him down. And someone still has those bills. And I'm in for the most of them. The man who shot Waldo got away in Waldo's car with your briefcase in it. Yeah, it could be. The cops caught him. Oh. And the police have the briefcase. Maybe. But the police are interested in solving crime, not in tossing mud for the benefit of sensation eaters. Look, I've got a friend or two at headquarters. Let me see what I can do. It's worth $500 to me. Well, then that's what it'll cost you. Well, good luck. And, um... Thank you, Mr. Uh... Marlowe. Philip Marlowe, remember? My name is Frank Barsley. Bars... Barsley. Oh. What does that mean? The big hydroelectric engineer? Yeah. How did you know? My voices tell me. Who? Darling, this man is manifestly insane. It's the heat, Miss Kochenk. It's the Santa and it's the desert wind. May I use your telephone? <laughs> Someday I must tell you about Ibarra, salt of the earth Ibarra, detective lieutenant over Central Homicide. I phoned Ibarra from Miss Kolchenko's house and told him where he could find a well-dressed cadaver named Leon and furnished a few small details. I gave Ibarra time to check my tip and then I went down to see the good lieutenant and told him why I'd been up in Waldo's room, only to find Leon instead of a certain lady's string of pearls. Pearls, eh? Well, I thought Waldo might have them up there. Mm-hmm. Whose pearls were they? A lady's. Go on. Or they might have been in Waldo's car that Waldo's killer drove away in. Mm, 
here. Well, what here? They might have. Also a batch of unpaid bills charged to the account of a certain Frank Barsley? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, now, the police aren't interested in domestic scandal. They, they want to prevent or to solve crime, right? So? So I've got $500 for the police fund if those pearls and those bills are returned to their rightful owners. Oh, great you, kid. No, no, it's, it's a valuable necklace. Yeah. There's your necklace. That's it. Forty-one pearls, perfectly matched diamond propeller class. That's it. That's the one. Take it away, Morrow. On the level? Mm-hmm. Just tell me straight what it's all about, all oh, that. Sure, sure. Well, this Walter was blackmailing a wife with the pearls, and her husband with the bills, by the name of Barsley. Well, Barsley sent Leon to get the bills from Waldo. Instead, Waldo killed Leon, then stepped out and happened to get shot by that guy at the bar. Now, if Barsley's name stays out of the paper, I get $500, and that goes to the police fund. We'll keep him out. Well, now, I'm not in this case for money. I just want to get back the bills and the pearls. And as you say, Mo, the police sound in business to sling mud. Well, you can deliver the pearls to the lady yourself if you like. No, she no, 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 Mara. Uh, you better take them to her. You see, except for the diamond propeller clasp on them, they're, uh, they're phony. Fo- phony? But all with the clasp, Mara. All but the clasp. <laughs> The flyer, Johnny Dalmas. The great lover had given Lola a string of fake pearls. Well, I didn't know how to tell her, but I called her up and told her to meet me at the beachcombers at two hours. And the slip of the bad news slowly. I'm glad you asked me to meet you here, Mr. Marlowe. See, I... I had to have someone to talk to. Go ahead. Go ahead, talk. I'm listening. Now, Mr. Marlowe, now more than ever, I must... I must have those pearls. Why? Money trouble? Oh, no, no. It's just that everything's gone wrong. This morning, my husband told me where to separate. Oh, I'm sorry, Lola. But if I had Johnny's pearls, it would be a link with the past. And with Johnny, it only meant to me. It's how a woman feels, Mr. Marlowe. I wouldn't blame you for not understanding. Maybe I do, though. So please, Mr. Marlowe, please. We'll try to find my pearls. Lola, look, I... Even if it isn't all of them. Any part of them, any... Any single smallest one of them. It'll be Johnny's. Look, will you uh, meet me here again around 4 o'clock? I'll be here. Okay, I'll see what I can do. There was only one earthly decent thing I could do. I took Lola's glass pearls to a jeweler and I had him take off the diamond glass and put it on one of those strings of so-called simulated pearls that they sell you for three bucks, tax included. Then I went back to keep my four o'clock date with Lola at the beachcombers. Well, Mr. Marlowe, anything new? Yes. The uh, police found some pearls in Waldo's car. They found my pearls? No, no, not, not exactly. Not exactly. Well, Waldo was getting set to jip you, Lola. He had the diamond clasp of your necklace attached to a string of cheap imitations. And then he sold the real pearls. Oh, how... Oh. These are the imitations, yeah. Yes. But it is my clasp. The glass is real. Is that all right? Yes, it's the glass that Jenny Dalmas gave me. Of course, of course it's all right. Oh, that's swell. Thank you so much, Mr. Marlowe. Forget it. I won't. Not ever. But is this goodbye? Yeah, I think so. You'll never get over Johnny Dalmas, Lola. If anybody ever bothers you again, though, well, let me know. Name's Philip Marlowe. (laughs) 
I drove almost to Malibu and then I parked and walked out on that rock cliff. Then I reached in my pocket and dug out the string of bohemian glass pearls that Lieutenant Ibarra found in Waldo's car. I cut the knot at one end and slipped the pearls off one by one. One by one, I flipped them into the water. Bell swooped down on them and they flapped up again, screaming indignantly. The phony pearls had fooled Waldo and little Barsley, but they couldn't fool a seatbelt. I said to myself, to the memory of Johnny Dalmas, just another four-flusher. I listened a while to the wheeling seagulls. All at once I realized that the wind had died. The Santa Ana had blown itself out. The red wind was done. It was over. Just heard Van Heflin starring in the first of a new mystery series, Raymond Chandler's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, brought to you by the Lever Brothers Company, makers of Tuxedos. Tonight's story on the adventure of Philip Marlowe is based on Red Wind, written by Raymond Chandler, creator of Philip Marlowe, the screen's most famous private detective. It was adapted for radio by Milton Geiger. Third with Van Heflin was Lorene Tuttle as Lola Barsley. And this is Wendell Niles inviting you to listen again next week at this same time to another exciting story on The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin with a distinguished cast. Not so many years ago, tomato soup and cream of tomato were unusual dishes, enjoyed very much, but not very often. Today, of all the soups in the world, tomato soup is the one most often served. Not because women have taken to making tomato soup frequently. No, on the contrary, few housewives ever attempted anymore. There's just one reason for tomato soup's popularity, and it is this. The magic, matchless flavor of Campbell's tomato soup. There's a lively verve, a dashing zest about this flavor that people take to at once and come back to and enjoy again and again. The first racy taste of it has a way of arousing a desire to eat, and yet there's a pleasant feeling of satisfaction when the last spoonful is gone. So this soup is a happy choice for the main dish at lunchtime or at supper, and it also is a fine way to start the day's main meal. Serve it sometimes, too, as cream of tomato, made with milk instead of water. You can always be sure that it will be received with pleasure. Because this, of all soups, is the one people like to have most often. Campbell's Tomato Soup. We present The Queer Feet, adapted by John Scotney, with Andrew Sachs as Father Brown. Hey, Giovanni, what are you doing down there? Hmm? Oh, you mean young Hector. Well, you, 
You know what they say about the waiters here. She is much easier to become a member of parliament than a, <laughs> than waiter, a waiter at, at the, the Hotel, Hotel Vernon. Right. <laughs> and yet here you are, a waiter, demeaning yourself by talking to a mere dishwasher. Ah, uh, not just talking, but actually doing some washing up. What? Oh, you Mr. Lever, Mr. Lever, he say, you, Giovanni, you clean the special silver. The young Hector, I, I cannot trust him with it. What? He only been here. A fortnight, anyway, is American. He's probably bandito. Ah, get away. <laughs> hey, these are amazing. Mm. But amazing. They're not pretty, but they are amazing. What, what in tarnation are they? Ah, they are a fish service. Hmm. You see? Each knife and fork is shaped like a fish. Oh, yes. And these pearls. Are... Those pearls are enormous. But uh, what are they for? What? Is it some special occasion? Oh, tonight is dining here a most exclusive English club. Each year for 10 or 15 years, ever since 1890s, they come here, 12 English gentlemen and aristocrats. Uh -huh. They take the whole dining room. They send us their special silver. And what for, you say? <laughs> to eat... <laughs> To eat the famous fish pie. <laughs> what? Tonight, the annual fish dinner of the club of the 12 true fishermen. The 12? Oh, come on. I don't believe it. Yes. The English. The English. <laughs> what, what is it? What is it, Giovanni? Uh, Are you all right, Giovanni? Uh, Giovanni! Uh, hey, help! Help! Mr. Lieber, help! Mr. Lieber, help! What's happened? What's happened? Oh, no. He just collapsed. Lucian, he's collapsed. He's collapsed. Oh, my God, he's collapsed. Don't distress yourself, lad. Look, jump to it, Hector. What? What? Get a taxi cab. Here's the money. Okay, right. The doctor's address is pinned up in the caretaker's office. Tell him it's urgent. I will, I will. Boris, Mario, get Giovanni upstairs into one of the guest rooms. Give him a brandy and hot water bottle. Right, go on. Right, the rest of you, calm down. Now, now, since you're all here, I'll go through one more time what happens this evening. Now, first, 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 when the gents arrive, it's customary for you all to be lined up against the back wall of the dining room. Then clear off. Smoothness and silence. Taxi! Taxi! What do you think you're doing? You'll get yourself killed, you will. Taxi! Can't you see I'm booked up? It's a matter of life and death. There's a man dying. I've got to get to a doctor. That's all right, driver. We'll take this young man to get the doctor, and we'll bring the doctor back with him. Right you are, yeah. Get in. <clears throat> Gee, thanks, sir. <sighs> now, tell me all about it. What happened? Is it bad, Doctor? Very bad, I'm afraid, Mr. Lever. I can't hold out any hope for him. He's asking for a priest. A priest? He's a Catholic. Oh, of course, of course. Oh, Giovanni, Giovanni, why'd you do this to me today of all days? Mario? See, si. You're a Catholic. Where do I find a priest? Et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Dear Lord, have mercy on his soul. The doctor? Yes, Father? 
I think. Uh... Yes. Yes, he's gone. A stroke like that, it's probably for the best. Yes. Uh, you know, Father... Uh... Brown. Father Brown, I'm willing to bet you never thought you'd see the inside of this place. The most exclusive hotel in London. <laughs> Doctor, however exclusive, as you say, a place may be, there is in the world a very aged rioter and demagogue who breaks into the most refined retreats with the dreadful news that all men are brothers. <laughs> and behold, he rides a pale horse, and his name is... Death? Yes. And my trade, like yours, is to follow him wheresoever he goes. That's strange. Do you... What's the matter? Sometimes... Sometimes one can smell evil, the way a dog smells rats. And you smell it now? Uh, not a great evil, but definitely something. Hmm. Oh, well. Shall we go down? You no doubt have arrangements to make concerning the disposal of the body, and uh, I must see Mr. Lever about something concerning that poor man's soul. I'm afraid I can't give you very long. My guests will be in a few minutes. Oh, dear. Um, well, it's about... Um, uh, Giovanni. Yes, oh. yes. He wasn't a bad man, but in his youth he... Um, well, he did something in Italy, and I, I can't break the secrecy of the confessional. Of oh, course. no, no. No, but he uh, begged me to write at once uh, to someone in Italy to at least partly make amends, and I do feel duty-bound to discharge the... Um, so I was wondering if... Um, oh, naturally, naturally. Uh, this is my private inner office. I, I use it for the more delicate matters. Oh? If these walls could only speak, eh? <laughs> oh, perhaps better not. Uh, uh, paper, pen, ink. Oh, that is good. Yes, yeah. it might be a bit noisy, I'm afraid. Um, this wall is pretty thin, and there's a passage from the kitchens runs right behind oh, no, it. No, 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 I'm sure it'll suit very well. Uh, well, I'll be off. Uh, the gentleman will be arriving any minute. Ah, hello there, Lever. How's the soup kitchen? Good evening, Your Grace. Yeah, well, here we are again. Come for our fish pud? I hope everything will be to your satisfaction, Your Grace. I hope so. What? Heads will roll otherwise, eh? <laughs> if you'll excuse me, Your Grace. Oh, yes, yes. You pop off. Make sure they don't burn it. What? Your Grace. Ah. There they all are. All the jolly old waiters all lined up against the wall as usual. Look as though they're going to be shot, eh, only. <laughs> Very good shot. <laughs> you want to review one pound? You're the senior military man present. No. Oh. Good Lord. Thought the colonel was going to speak then. That'd be a turn up for the book, eh? <laughs> Never thought of the cavalry as the silent service till I met you, pound. Well, I'll do it myself, then. <laughs> Screw the old eyeglass in the eye. Like a proper brigadier. Let's have a shifty. <laughs> yes. What are you doing skulking behind a pillar? Setting up straight. Good. Big fella, aren't you? Your grace, yes. Right. Now... What about you? Uh, know your face? You've been here before? Eleven years, Your Grace. Ah, I thought so. 
Right, right. Well, uh, dismiss. Huh? <laughs> off you go, off you go. Thank you, thank you, sir. Right, gentlemen. Come to the table. That's it all. Let's be seated. Ah, 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 nice evening. Ah, let's have a look at the wines. Let's see. Fizz, the widow, 1902. Oh, yeah. That's a very decent drop of Now, Clarence. Father Brown. Oh, Mr. Lever. I hope uh, your guests all is well. Oh, oh yes. Oh. oh, I thought you must be hungry. I brought you something. Oh, that's very good of you. But you see, being Friday, I'm not supposed to eat. Ah, oh, it's the fish pie. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, that's fine. Oh, it smells delicious. One, one moment. There, listen. What? Those feet. I keep hearing them, but I just can't place them. That heavy, slow step. At first I thought it was you. Oh, no, not me. No, no. The only creature on earth that walks like that is... Um, is a gentleman of Western oh, Europe. Western Europe? Yes, and probably one who's never worked. Oh. No, it's the other step that worries me. Listen. Is he much lighter? As feverish as a rat, almost noiseless... Like a man walking on tiptoe. Oh, I'm sure I don't know, Father Brown. It doesn't seem very unusual to me. Oh, would you like something to drink? We have seltzer water and lemonade. Oh. I always keep some for you people, ever since we had the American clergyman here. Lemonade? American clergyman? Yes, most kind, but please don't. No, 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 thank you. Oh, sorry. Would you like some wine? Oh. It's only that the American clergyman was most rigorous about, you know, yes. not... Yes, yes, you see, that's where we differ theologically. Uh, the priest of my particular persuasion... Um, well, you see, we remember our founder's first miracle was changing the water into wine, and not the other way round. Yes, some wine would be... Oh, very... get Hector to bring it to you. Oh. Oh, he's a bit cut up, you know. Give him yes. something to do. Uh, uh, Moulin au vent, all right? Oh, yes. Uh, right, I, I must get off. The gentleman, you know. Anything you want? Oh, oh good. Fine. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. oh, thank you, waiter. Yeah. Um, I say, Audley, you're supposed to know about politics. Well, yeah, what did Northcliffe's rag say about you? The man the Empire needs, eh? Oh, what a <laughs> Well, what's his name? And that new Chancellor of the Exchequer. What's he like? Supposed to be more red than Keir Harding. He's an interesting fellow, Charlie. Writes rather good poetry, as a matter of fact. Poetry? Good Lord. Minor stuff, but not half bad. You know what the country's coming to. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing, Colonel. He's got a damn good seat. I was out with him with the corn last season. Left me, I can tell you. Your grace. And, oh, no, no, no. No more, thank you, waiter. Got to leave room in the old tum for the fish portal. Soup, your grace. Soup? Ah, now that's more like it. Know a poem about soup? Soup. Of the evening, beautiful soup. 
<laughs> Who wrote that, eh, Tennyson? <laughs> your chance for the Exchequer Fellow Audley? Charlie, you're incorrigible. I don't believe for one moment. Come in. Father Brown? Ah. I brought you some wine, sir. Yes, you must be Hector. Yes. Uh, shh, shh. Hmm? Did you hear that? On the other side of the wall, the footsteps, very quick. And now slow and steady. Yeah, yes, it's, it's a passage from the kitchen to the dining room, sir. They've gone. Here, you better have a glass of wine yourself. From the look of you, you need it. Oh, thank you. I've never seen anyone like that before. Uh, like? Dying. Ah, yes. Now, I've seen all too many. If it's any consolation, when he actually died, he was at peace. Yes. Oh, the letter to Italy. I mustn't keep you. No, no, no. Don't go. There he is again. What a... It sounds to me like two different people. Yes. Yes, I thought of that, but there's a slight creak in the boots. I'm sure they're the same pair. Ah, cracking good fish pie, that was. <laughs> they can't do it like that anywhere but here. Nowhere. Nowhere, assuredly, except here. It was represented to me that the same could be done at the Café Anglais. Nothing like it, sir. Nothing like it. Overrated place. Ah, the Colonel has spoken. <laughs> Hey, what's the matter with that waiter? Did you see that? Popped in as brisk as you like, looked over here, went white and popped out again. Another one now, peeping round the door. Another? Well, I'll be blown. Splendid work young Mooch's doing in Burma. No other nation in the world... Boy, what the devil's going on? I'm extremely sorry, Colonel, but your grace might be prepared to have a word with you. It's very important. Oh, certainly. You will pardon me, your grace. Gentlemen, I have great apprehensions. Your fish plates, they are cleared away with a knife and fork on them. Well, I hope so. You see the waiter who took them away? You know him? Know the waiter? Certainly not. Well, I never sent him. I don't know when or why he came. I sent my waiter to collect the plates and he found them already gone. Do you mean that somebody has stolen our silver fish service? Right. Are all the waiters here? Yes, yes, they're all here, Colonel. I always count them as I review them. Never be more than 15 waiters and there were a 15 tonight. No more and no less. Wait on. You say you, say you saw all my 15 waiters? Uh -huh. Are you sure? 15 uh, of them? As usual. What's the matter with that? Nothing. What? Only you never did. What? I... One of them's lying dead upstairs, Your Grace. Oh, I'm most terribly sorry. Is there anything one can do? Oh, he's had a priest, thank you, sir. That's whatever my strong point. But if there were 15 of them lined up and only 14 live waiters, we're left with one extra and he must be the thief. Yeah. Gentlemen, yes. down to the front yes. and back doors and secure oh, everything. Right. Oh, the 24 pearls are worth recovering apart from being made look at some damn fools. At your command, old boy. Come on, Audley. What? This is a lark. I'll now, Lever, I want all your chaps on paraded here, pretty damn jolly. Sir? Quickly, man, quickly, all the waiters and cooks and what have you. In here. Silence on parade. That's all I went down and looked under the stairs and he wasn't there at all. That goes but for you I... too, Charlie. Yeah, sorry, Colonel. Right, Lever, at the lot. Yes, Colonel, I think so. Patron, what about Hector? Where's Hector? 
Anyone seen Hector? He was not downstairs by the sink. Who is this Hector? Uh, oh, he's an American, a plongeur. A what? Uh, a dishwasher. He's only been here a fortnight. Hector what? What's his surname? Where do I know? He's a dishwasher. Everyone just calls him Hector. Did he know about the silver? He was with Giovanni, the one who died. When Giovanni, he was cleaning it. Well, it look, looks like we must find Hector. Uh, sorry to butt in, Colonel, but uh, I think that chap behind you wants to say something. Uh, little fellow in black. He's just come in. Yes, I... I, I, I must apologise for interrupting, gentlemen, but um, I, uh, I think perhaps I have what you're looking for. You. You? <laughs> a valuable thing to deposit in a cloak, Romante. Did you steal those things? Oh. Well, at least I'm bringing them back again. But um, to make a clean breast of it, I didn't. Did you catch the fellow who did steal them? Oh, yes. Yes. I caught him with an unseen hook and an invisible line, which is long enough to stretch to let him wander to the end of the world and still to bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. Yes, I, uh, I wrestled for his soul, and he, he repented of his crime. Oh, I say! <laughs> repented of his crime, eh, did he? That's a bit ripe, eh? <laughs> yes, yes. Odd, isn't it? That a thief and vagabond should repent, while many who are rich and secure remain hard and frivolous and without fruit for God and man? <laughs> yes. Now, uh, no doubt you're anxious to continue with your meal, and I have a letter to post if you doubt the penance. There are the knives and forks. Yes, good evening, gentlemen. What a funny little cove, Colonel. That was damn bad form, Charlie. I'm going after him to apologise. Padre! 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 Yes? Look here, I'm very sorry about that rudeness. Stupid young blighter. Oh. I'd like to apologise to you on behalf of the club. Pound's the name. Colonel Pound. No, 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 there's really no need. And I'd also like to thank you for getting our silver back from that Yankee fellow. Yankee fellow? What's his name? Hector. Doesn't seem to have a surname. Fellow who disappeared. Oh, no, dear, 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 there seems to be some confusion. No, Hector didn't steal your cutlery. He disappeared because I took the liberty of telling him to go home. But he'd had a very distressing day, and he's very young. Mind you, he did play a part in the theft. Uh Uh, No, an accidental part. Mm -hmm. He had the the misfortune to share a taxi cab with a man in evening dress. Now, poor Hector Mm. wasn't to know that when he chatted on to this man, he was talking to one of the most audacious thieves in Europe. Really? Yes, but I'm sorry I'm keeping you from your dinner. Dinner be hanged. I want to hear the end of this. Is there somewhere we can talk? Well, Mr Lever was kind enough to lend me a room for a private matter. If you'd like to, it's just along here. Yes, yes. After you, my dear fellow. Yes. Do you know, Colonel, this archangel of impudence who stole your forks walked up and down this very passage 20 times in the blaze of all the lamps... In the glare of all eyes? Good Lord. <laughs> Don't ask me what he was like. You yourself have seen him six or seven times tonight. Uh, yes, this way, along here. You see, Colonel, I was shut up in this small room. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's along here to the left. Good Lord, place is a maze. <laughs> yes. I was doing some writing when I heard a pair of feet in the passage doing a dance that was, in its way, as queer as the dance of death. Uh, the heavy steps I recognised... Uh, They were, if you'll excuse me, uh, very like yours. (laughs) It was the walk 
of a well-fed gentleman oh. waiting for something who oh. strolls about because he's physically alert rather than mentally impatient. But there were other steps? Yes, funny little steps, definitely made by the same man. Now, what wild creature, I thought, tears about on tiptoe in that extraordinary style. Then I remembered Mr. Lever saying he found nothing unusual in those footsteps. Of course not. I realised he hears them every day, all day. It was the walk of a waiter. That walk with the body slanted forward, the eyes looking down, the ball of the toe spurning the ground, and, 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 and coattails and napkins flying. Now, why should the same person sound like a gentleman one moment and a waiter the next? Wait a second. Think I'm ahead of you. You say the thief wore evening dress. Yes. So do waiters. <laughs> when he was with us, he pretended to be the 15th waiter. After all, we can't tell one waiter from another. <laughs> then when the waiters were about, he played the gentleman. And that's a thought. I suppose they can't tell us apart either. <laughs> exactly. Now, his worst moment was when the waiter stood in a row. But even then, he contrived to lean against a pillar, so that, for that important instant, uh, the waiters thought him a gentleman, while the gentleman thought him a servant. <laughs> the rest of the time, he was either serving at table or strolling about as a gentleman. It was no new thing uh, to the waiters for a member of the smart set to pace about wherever he chooses. Fair enough, but tell me, how, how did you actually catch him? Ah, here we are. Now, <laughs> do come in. Please, sit down here. Thank you. Now then, <clears throat> I was sitting uh, here, like this, when I heard the same footsteps again, only this time they were not in the passage behind us, but in the main corridor in front, running like a hare and heading towards the main door. I went through into the cloakroom. Uh, the attendant wasn't there, and I, I'm afraid I slipped his coat on. Well, my, my costume is rather conspicuous. Oh. Um, he hadn't coat, please. A find I have to dash off, don't you know? Um, here's my ticket, number four. Very good, sir. Uh, here they are, sir. Uh, look here, I haven't got any change. You'd better have this half-sovereign. Oh, I think, sir, you have some silver in your pocket. Hang it, if I give you gold, why should you complain? Because silver is sometimes more valuable than gold. Uh, that is, in large quantities. Uh, yeah, look, look, get out of my way. No. I, I don't want to threaten you. But... I do want to threaten you. I want to threaten you with the worm that dieth not and the fire that is not quenched. You're a rum sort of cloakroom clerk. I am a priest, Monsieur Flambeau. What? How do you... The little priest. You again. <laughs> it must be fate. Fate? Do you know what the English King Alfred wrote in his copy of Bethius? I say, as do all Christian men, that it is a divine purpose that rules and not fate. Now, Monsieur Flambeau... I am ready to hear your confession. So, what did the fellow say to you? Oh, that must be where the story ends. Colonel, your health. Yours, Padre. Now, as to whether he gave the cutlery back in a spirit of true penitence or out of a sort of sporting spirit, uh, I'm not sure. A crime is like any other work of art. What? Oh, Colonel... Don't be so surprised. Every work of art, divine or diabolic, has one indispensable mark. I mean, that the centre of it is simple 
However much the fulfilment may be complicated, thus in Hamlet, let us say, the grotesqueness of the gravedigger, the, the flowers of the mad girl, the grin of the skull, are all oddities in a sort of tangled wreath round the one plain, tragic figure of a man in black. Gentlemen, be upstanding. His Majesty, King Edward. King Edward. God bless him. Cigars, waiter. Hello, Charlie. Oh, hello, Colonel. Where have you been? The King. Here, have one of these Romeo and Juliettes. Oh. Old Audley here wants to start some new ceremony, don't you know? Yes. In honour of the forks being saved. Oh. <laughs> Any ideas? I should suggest that henceforward we wear green coats instead of black. Oh, good idea. <laughs> yeah, dear. I don't know. Uh, just one thing. Why do you suggest that, old boy? Stop us looking like waiters. Uh, <laughs> hang it all. A gentleman never looks like a waiter. Mm. Nor a waiter like a gentleman, I suppose. <laughs> In The Queer Feet by G.K. Chesterton, the part of Father Brown was played by Andrew Sachs, Flambeau, Olivier Pierre, Colonel, Nat Brenner, Duke, Christopher Scott, Lever, David Graham, Hector, Kerry Shale, Doctor, David Sinclair, Giovanni, Arnold Diamond, Jean-Pierre, Robin Summers, Audley, Alan Thompson. The Queer Feet was adapted by John Scottney and directed in Bristol by Alec Reed. Free for top value scents. An elegant polished brass chafing dish. Or, if something spills, a Bristol carpet sweeper, perfect for touch-up. To brighten your living room, select a beautiful Bradley table lamp, fashioned in walnut and brass. To enjoy your favorite TV shows in any room, choose an RCA portable television set. Like everything else, free for top value stamps. So save, save, save top value stamps. The best gifts in life are free, free, free. Now you can double your listening pleasure by subscribing to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. For only 99 cents a month, you gain access to more shows for your enjoyment. Subscribe now, and happy listening. So now, an Agatha Christie whodunit, starring June Whitfield as Miss Marple. When a young woman is found dead at Gossington Hall, it's up to St Mary Mead's finest to solve the brutal murder. I have always loved the time when, first thing in the morning, my waking dreams begin to merge with the sounds of ordinary reality. 
the dawn chorus in the garden, the clink of milk bottles on the doorstep, and if one is fortunate, the rattle of curtains on the landing telling of the approach of the maid with a cup of tea. So it came as quite a shock to my old friend Dolly Bantry when instead of these pleasant sounds she was rudely awakened by a frantic banging on her bedroom door. Oh, ma'am, ma'am, there's a body in the library! We present June Whitfield as Miss Marple in Agatha Christie's The Body in the Library. Arthur! Hmm? Arthur! Wake up! Huh? Uh. Wake up, Arthur! Did you hear what she said? Hmm? Oh, very likely. Oh. Quite agree with you. You've got to listen to me, Arthur. Mary came in and said there's a body in the library. She can't have. She did. You must have imagined I it. I didn't imagine it. You've been dreaming, Dolly. That's what it is. I was having a dream, but it was about the flower show and the vicar's wife was in a bathing dress. Well, <laughs> there you are then. I did not dream about a body in the library, mm. Arthur. Mm. Get up at once and go downstairs and... Do something about it. it. It's in there, sir. Hmm? I took one look at it. My legs gave way and my insides turned over. Nonsense, girl. You're just imagining things. See for yourself, then. Uh. Good Lord. Two, five, one. Is that you, Jane? Well, of course it is, Dolly. What's the matter? Jane. The most awful thing has happened. We've just found a body in the library. What sort of body? It's a blonde. A what? A blonde! A young girl. She's just lying there on the hearth rug. Dead. That's why you've got to come over here at once. I'm sending the car for you now. The library was a little like Colonel Bantry, large and shabby and untidy but across the moth-eaten bearskin was sprawled the figure of a girl wearing a backless evening dress of white spangled satin. Her hair was unnaturally fair, her face heavily made up. She had slightly protruding teeth and her fingernails were enamelled a deep blood red, and so were the toenails in their cheap silver sandals. It was a tawdry, flamboyant, pathetic figure. She doesn't look real, does she? She's very young. Yes, I suppose she is. And dressed in this cheap finery. But what could she possibly have been doing in Arthur's library? The window's been forced. Perhaps she came down here with a burglar. Well, she's hardly dressed for a burglary. No, it's more as if she were dressed for dancing or for a party of some kind, but... There's nothing like that in St Mary Mead. No, I suppose not. You're not thinking of... Well, I was just wondering. Basil Blake? Oh, no. I know his mother. All the same, there has been a lot of talk, and he does have parties. You mean the film people? 
Well, one does hear the most alarming stories, shouting and singing and everyone very drunk. Oh. Old Mrs. Berry told me she went in and found a young woman asleep on the sofa in her birthday suit. That'll be Colonel Melchett. Arthur insisted that this was a case for the chief constable of the county. He wouldn't talk to anyone else. Look here, Bantry, uh, I've, I've got to get this off my chest. Are you really telling me that you haven't the faintest idea who this girl is? Damn it all, Melchit. You can't possibly think... Yes, I, I know, old man, but uh, look at it like this. It could be damned awkward for you. Married man, fond of your wife and all that. But just between ourselves, if you, if you, if you were tied up with this girl at all, better say so now. Uh, quite natural to, to want to suppress the fact. I should feel the same myself. But I've never set eyes on a girl. I'm not that sort of chap. Well, if you say so. Question is, what was she doing in your library? How should I know? I didn't ask her, yeah? But she came here all the same. Looks as though she wanted to see you. You haven't had any odd letters or anything? No, I haven't. What were you doing yourself last night? Well, I went to a meeting of the Conservative Association. Nine o'clock at Much Benham. And you got home when? Well, I left Much Benham about ten. <laughs> had a bit of trouble on my way home. Had to change a wheel. I got back at a quarter to twelve. You didn't go into the library? No, I was tired. I went straight up to bed. Mm. You, you don't think any of the servants might have been involved in this business? It doesn't seem likely. They're a most respectable lot. We had them for years. Now, of course. It may not be a local affair at all. The girl could have come down from town, perhaps with uh, some fellow. Though, why they decided to break into your library... London. That's more like it. We don't have those kind of goings-on round here. <laughs> at least... Uh, uh, at least what? Upon my word. Basil Blake. And who's he? A perfectly poisonous young man connected with the film industry. Works at some place called Lemville Studios. He's taken that ghastly modernised cottage on the Lancham Road. Yes, he throws drunken parties and has girls down for the weekend. Uh, I couldn't help but noticing one of them. Platinum Blonde. Uh, platinum Blonde? I say, Melchit, you don't think... It's a distinct possibility. It would account for a girl like that being in St. Mary Mead. I think I might just run along and have a word with Mr. Blake. And what are you after? Collecting for something? Are you Mr. Basil Blake? Right first time. I should like to have a few words with you, if I may, Mr. Blake. Who are you? I'm Colonel Melchett, the Chief Constable of the County. You don't say. OK, let's have your few words, then. I understand, Mr. Blake, that last weekend you had a visitor, a fair-haired young lady. <laughs> have you been listening to those old cats down in the village? Does the chief constable of the county really have to come round to check up on my sex life? Your morals are no concern of mine. I've come here because the body of a fair-haired young woman of slightly exotic appearance has been found murdered. Murdered? Where? In the library at Gossington Hall. At old Bantry's? A dirty old man. I'll trouble you to keep a civil tongue in your head. Uh, can you throw any light on this business? You've come to ask me if I've Mr. Blonde. Is that it? If you want to put it like that. Well, it looks as if I've been saved in the nick of time. Why the hell did you run off like that? 
I told you it was time to go, and you just went on dancing with that hairy gorilla. You were just jealous, that's all. Jealous? I couldn't stand the sight of a girl who can't hold a drink and lets herself be poured all over by a filthy brute. And I refuse to be dictated to. I'll leave a party when I'm ready to leave it. <clears throat> Are you still here? About time you took yourself off, isn't it? Let me introduce you. Dinah Lee, Colonel Blimp of the County Police. How do you do, Miss Lee? And now, Colonel, that you've seen my blonde is alive and in good condition, perhaps you'll get on with the good work over old Bantry's bit on the side. Good morning. Any luck with the missing persons list, Inspector? Not a lot so far, Colonel. There's a Mrs Saunders, dark-haired, around 36, but from what I can gather, she's probably gone off with a commercial traveller from Leeds. <laughs> Is that the best you can come up with? Then there's Pamela Reeves, 16, missing from home since last night. Had attended Girl Guide Rally. Dark brown hair with a pigtail, five foot five. Oh, goodness sakes, Stack. This wasn't a schoolgirl. What we're looking for is... A... Oh, excuse me, sir. Much better, mate, you one? Yes, speaking. Yes. Yes, uh, hang on, just a minute. Right, yes, go ahead. Ruby Keane, 18, occupation, professional... So, look, would you go a bit slower? Yeah, the, occupation, professional, dancer. That's better. Five feet, four inches, platinum blonde hair... Blue eyes, yes. Believed to be wearing diamond evening dress. What? Well, not a doubt of it, I'd say. Yes, get her to go down there as soon as you can. Oh, that sounds more like it. Who was she? Name of Ruby Keane. Reported missing from the Majestic Hotel Daymouth. Daymouth? Now, things are beginning to make sense. Yeah, they've got a woman who knew her well. They'll take her over to the mortuary to see if she can identify the girl and then bring her on here. A woman named Josie Turner. Yes, that was Ruby all right. Poor kid. I suppose you don't have a... Yeah, I'll get you a brandy, Miss Turner. Poor little Ruby. What swine men are. You believe it was a man? Wasn't it? I mean, I naturally thought... Any particular man you were thinking of? No. I haven't the least idea. And Ruby wouldn't have let on to me if... If what? If she'd been carrying on with some man. Here's your brandy, Miss Turner. Thanks. You're very kind. Pleasure. Right. What do you want me to tell you? Well, I'd like the girl's full name and address, her relationship to you, and all that you know about her. Her real name was Ruby Legg. Keen was her professional name. Her mother was my mother's cousin. I've known her all my life, but not particularly well, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I understand. Ruby was training as a dancer. She'd had a good engagement last year in Panto, and she'd been one of the dancing partners in a Palais de Dance in South London. It's a nice, respectable place, but there isn't much money in it. And that's where I came into it. I've been a bridge and dance hostess at the Majestic in Danemouth for three years now. It's a good job, well paid and pleasant. You try to get the right people together for bridge and all that, and get the young people dancing with each other. The kind of job that needs a good deal of tact and understanding, I imagine. Mm, it certainly helps. I also do a couple of exhibition dances every evening with Raymond Starr. He's the tennis and dancing pro. Well, 
As it happens, this summer I slipped on the rocks while I was bathing and gave my ankle a nasty turn. Yes, I noticed you had a slight limp. Naturally, that put a stop to the dancing for a bit. And as you can imagine, I didn't want someone else coming in to queer my pitch. So I thought of Ruby and suggested to the manager that I should get her down. And she was a success? People liked her? Oh, yes. Mind you, Ruby hadn't got much comeback. She was a bit dumb. She went down better with the older men. Had she got any special friends? Not in the way you mean. Or at any rate, not that I knew about. Will you tell us when you last saw your cousin? Last night. She and Raymond do two exhibition dances, one at 10.30 and another at midnight. They finished the first one, and after that I noticed her dancing with a young man who was staying at the hotel. Just after midnight, Raymond came up in a terrible state asking where she was. She hadn't turned up. I went to her room, but she wasn't there. I noticed that she'd changed. The dress that she'd been dancing in, a sort of pink foamy affair, was lying over a chair. So what did you do? I told Raymond I'd take over the exhibition dance with him. We chose one that was fairly easy on my ankle, but even so it was pretty badly swollen next morning. We sat up till about two o'clock waiting for her, but she didn't turn up. And this morning, when Ruby still hadn't come back and you saw that her bed hadn't been slept in, you went to the police? No, I certainly didn't. I've got my job to think of. The one thing a hotel doesn't want is a scandal. And anyway, I didn't think anything had happened to Ruby. I thought she'd just made a fool of herself with some young man. It was a Mr Jefferson who sent for the police, I understand. Was he one of the guests staying at the hotel? Yes, he was. What made Mr Jefferson do that? He's an invalid. He gets het up very easily. Who was the young man dancing with your cousin when you last saw her? His name's Bartlett. He's been there about ten days. Uh-huh. Were they on very friendly terms? Not specially. Not that I knew, anyway. Did your cousin ever mention Gossington? Gossington? Gossington Hall. Never heard of it. Gossington Hall was where her body was found. Gossington Hall? How extraordinary. Do you know a Colonel or Mrs Bantry? Never heard of them. Or a Mr Basil Blake? Yes, that rings a bell. But I don't remember anything about him. Miss Turner, if it would not inconvenience you too much, I'd like you to come with me to Gossington Hall. Of course, by now, the news had spread like wildfire round St Mary Mead, and by the time it reached the vicarage, it was a naked blonde who had been found on the Colonel's hearthrug. Everyone was agreed that the Colonel must have been a very dark horse indeed. Mrs Price Ridley said that when she last went up to London, she had seen him at a taxi rank at Paddington, asking to be taken to an address in St John's Wood and that she considered to be positive proof. Colonel Melchett's bringing that poor girl's cousin over here, Jane. Is he really? I suppose he wants her to see where it happened and all that. Oh, more than that, I expect. What do you mean, Jane? Well, I think perhaps he might want her to meet Colonel Bantry. To see if she recognises him? I suppose they're bound to suspect Arthur. I am afraid so. Oh, don't look at me like that, Jane. I know he's sometimes a bit silly about pretty girls who come here to play tennis, but he's just being rather fatuous and avuncular. There's no harm in it. And anyway, why shouldn't he? 
After all, I've got the garden. You mustn't worry, Dolly. They're here. I'd better go and tell Arthur. Ah, Mrs. Bantry. Let me introduce Miss Turner, the cousin of the uh, victim. How do you do, Miss Turner? All this must be rather awful for you. Yes, it is. None of it seems to be real at all. Like a bad dream. Oh, my dear, I do so understand. Uh, this is Miss Marple. How do you do? How do you do? You're a good man about Mrs. Bantry? Yes, he just... Hello, Marchit. You're back soon. Uh, Colonel Bantry, this is Miss Turner. Oh, how do you do, Miss Turner? Uh, care to see where it all happened? Oh, really, Arthur? The poor girl might not wish... Oh, no. I think I'd like to see. Oh, well, this way, then. We found her in the library. She was there, on the hearthrug. I just can't understand it. Well, we certainly can't. It just isn't the sort of place where... That is what makes it so very interesting. You mean you have an explanation, Miss Marple? Oh, yes, I have an explanation. But, of course, it is only my own idea. Tommy Bond and Mrs Martin, our new schoolmistress. She went to wind up the clock and a frog jumped out. Huh? <coughs> it must have been very worrying for you, Miss Turner. When you realised your cousin had disappeared? I was more annoyed than worried. I didn't know then that anything had happened to her. And yet you went to the police. Oh, but I didn't. It was a guest at the hotel. Mr Jefferson. Jefferson? Yes. He's an invalid. Not Conway Jefferson. Mm-hmm. But we know him very well. He's an old friend of ours. So he's staying at the Majestic? He was there last year, too. Fancy. And we never knew... How is he nowadays? He's wonderful. Really, quite wonderful. And are the family there with him? Mr Gaskell, you mean? And Adelaide Jefferson and her son, Peter. Yes, they're all there. <laughs> they're nice people, aren't they? Mark Gaskell and Daddy. Oh, yes. Yes, they are. Yes, they are, really. What on earth did she mean by that? They are, really... Do you think, Jane, there may be something... Oh, I do. Indeed, I do. Her manner changed at once when the Jeffersons were mentioned. But what do you think it can be? Well, my dear, you're the one who knows them. There is clearly something about the Jeffersons that is worrying that young woman. And it was interesting what she said about the girl being missing. She wasn't anxious. She was angry. And she looked angry. Really angry. The interesting point is, why? We'll find out why. We'll go to Danemouth and stay at the Majestic. Oh, but Dolly... Yes, Jane, you too. I need a change for my nerves after what has happened here. And you'll meet Conway Jefferson. He's a dear, absolute dear. Poor soul, it's the saddest story imaginable. Oh, well, he had a son and daughter and he loved both of them very dearly. They were both married, but they managed to spend a lot of time with him. They were flying home together from France, he and his two children. There was an accident, and the son and the daughter were killed. Conway survived, but he had to have both legs amputated. How very terrible. Mm. He used to be such an active man, and now he's a helpless cripple. But he never complains. 
His daughter-in-law, Addie, lives with him, with her son by her first marriage. And Mark Gaskell, Rosamond's husband, is there most of the time too. The whole thing was the most awful tragedy. Yes. And now there's another tragedy. Oh, but that's got nothing to do with the Jeffersons. Hasn't it? It was Mr. Jefferson who called the police in the first place. So he did. You know, Jane, that's really very curious. I'm sorry to disturb you, Mrs. Jefferson, but I'd rather like to have a word with your father-in-law. I'm from the police. Colonel Melchett. Oh, it's about poor Ruby, I suppose. Do sit down, Colonel. Thank you. My father-in-law is asleep. He's not strong at all, and this business has been a terrible shock to him. He was very fond of Ruby. The doctor's given him a sedative, but I know he will want to talk to you as soon as he wakes. In the meantime, perhaps I can be of help? It was Mr Jefferson, I understand, who reported Ruby Keane's disappearance to the police. Yes, that is so. Being an invalid, he gets easily upset and worried. We tried to persuade him that there was nothing to be concerned about and that Ruby wouldn't want the police brought in, but he insisted and, well, he was right. Exactly how well did you know, Miss Keane? Well, it's hard to say. My father-in-law is very fond of young people and likes to have them round him. Ruby was a new type to him. He was amused and intrigued by her chatting away. Well, will you tell me what you can of the course of events last night? Well, I'll do my best, but I don't imagine there's much that will be of use to you. Ruby came and sat with us in the lounge after dinner. We had arranged to play bridge later, not with Ruby, of course. She wasn't good at that kind of thing. We were waiting for Mark Gaskell, my brother-in-law. He was married to Mr Jefferson's daughter, but he had important letters to write. And for Josie. She was going to make a fourth with us. Uh, do you like Josie? Yes, I do. She's a first-class player. She's very human and shrewd, though she's not exactly well-educated. She never pretends about anything. So what happened then? Well, Josie came along and Ruby went off to do her first dance with Raymond Starr. She came back to us just when Mark joined us. Then she went off to dance with a young man and we started to play bridge. And that's all I know. About midnight, Raymond came along to ask where Ruby had got to. Since there was no sign of her, Josie did the dance with Raymond and we tried to calm down my father-in-law. He went to bed very worried and insisted on telephoning the police first thing this morning. Thank you, Mrs Jefferson. Now tell me... Do you have any idea who might have done this thing? No idea whatever. The girl never said anything uh, about some man she was afraid of or, or was intimate with? No, no, nothing. Although... Yes, Mrs Jefferson? I did overhear Josie asking Raymond whether Ruby was with that film man. What film man? Well, she didn't say. That's all I heard. Do you happen to know the name of the young man Ruby Keane was dancing with? Yes. His name's George Bartlett. He's a very silly young man. Oh, no, I hardly knew her at all. Danced with her once or twice, bit of tennis, that sort of thing. You were, I believe, the last person to see her alive last night. I suppose I must have been. Doesn't it sound awful? I mean, she was perfectly well when I last saw her. Absolutely. You danced with her? Well, not that I'm much of a dancer. How you dance is not really relevant, Mr. Bartlett. No, I suppose it isn't. 
well, we, we danced a bit, round and round, you know, and I talked, but she didn't say much and yawned a bit. Uh, then she said she had a headache. I know where I get off, so I said, righto, and that was it. She went off upstairs. She said nothing about meeting anyone or going out for a drive? Not to me. Just gave me the push. Mm-hmm. And what did you do? Let me see now. What did I do? Jolly difficult remembering things sometimes. Shouldn't be surprised if I went into the bar and had a drink. And did you? I did, but I don't think it was just then. I strolled about a bit, and then I went in and had a drink. And then I went back to the ballroom. Uh, what's her name? Um, Josie was dancing with the tennis fella. That would be at midnight. So you're telling me that you spent an hour wandering about outside? Yes. I was thinking of things. What were you thinking about? Oh, I don't know. Things? Do you have a car, Mr Bartlett? Oh, yes, I've got a car. And where was it? In the hotel garage? No, it was in the courtyard. I thought I might go for a spin, you see. Well, perhaps you did. Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, swear I didn't. You didn't take Ruby Keen out for a spin? Oh, I say, what are you getting at? I didn't. Swear I didn't. Thank you, Mr Bartlett. I think that'll be all for the present. Excuse me, would you be Colonel Melchett? Yes, that's correct. The name's Gaskell. Conway Jefferson is my father-in-law. He's awake now and asking to see you. No, thank you, Mr Gaskell. Keep him calm, if you can. His health's not good. It's a wonder, really, that the shock didn't finish him off. Yes, well, murder isn't good for the system, I agree. I'll be as careful as I can. Just how much has my family told you of my interest in Ruby, Colonel? Mrs. Jefferson has told me very little, beyond the fact that she was a kind of um, protégé. I've barely exchanged half a dozen words with Mr. Gaskell. Addie's a discreet creature, bless her. Mark would probably have been more outspoken. I think I should explain things to you. As you probably know, eight years ago I lost my son and daughter in a plane crash. My son-in-law and daughter-in-law, Mark and Addie, have been very good to me, but... I have come to realize that they have their own lives to lead. I understand. I'm a lonely man, and I like young people. Once or twice I've played with the notion of adopting someone. During the last few weeks I got very friendly with the girl who's been killed. She was absolutely natural. Not a lady, perhaps, but not vulgar either. As the days went by, I got more fond of Ruby... I decided that I would adopt her, legally. She would become, by law, my daughter. And may I ask what your son-in-law and daughter-in-law had to say about that? Well, what could they say? I probably didn't like it very much, but it's not as if they were dependent on me. I settled a big sum of money on my son when he married, and I did the same with my daughter. After the plane crash, that money passed on to their respective spouses. They've got nothing to complain about. Mm, I suppose not. You don't seem any too sure, Colonel. In my experience, Mr. Jefferson, families don't always behave reasonably. But let's get this straight. You proposed to make full provision for Ruby Keane, to settle money on her. But you hadn't already done so. Yes, that is correct. The necessary formalities for legal adoption were underway, but hadn't been completed. So, if anything happened to you... Uh, I provided for that. I made a new will a few days ago. I left a sum of £50,000 to be held in trust for Ruby until she was 24. 
when she would come into the principal. £50,000? And you were leaving it to a girl you'd only known for a few weeks? Well, why not? It's my money. I made it. I might have left it to the cat's home. Instead, I decided to turn Cinderella into a princess. Are there any other bequests? A small amount to Edwards, my valet, and the remainder to Mark and Daddy in equal shares. And would that be a large sum? Probably not. After death duties and expenses had been paid, it would probably amount to something between five and ten thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. I see. And now, there are a few questions I'd like to put to you, Colonel, if I may. I understand that poor Ruby was found strangled in a house some twenty miles from here. Uh, that is correct. At Gossington Hall. Gossington? But that's the Bantry's house. I know them very well. How do they come to be mixed up in this? Well, Ruby couldn't possibly have known them. Her only friends were theatrical people. Well, what's Bantry got to say about it? Well, he can't account for it in the least. He says he's never seen a girl in his life. Seems utterly fantastic. Have you any idea at all who might have done this thing? Good God, I wish I had. Uh, I mean, uh, there was no friend of hers from her past life, no, no, no man hanging about or, or threatening her? I'm sure there wasn't. She never had a regular boyfriend. She told me so herself. Well, thank you, Mr. Jefferson. I think that'll be enough for the present. Uh, you'll keep me informed of your progress, Colonel? Oh, yes. We'll keep in touch with you. Good afternoon, Mr. Jefferson. Good afternoon, Colonel Melchett. Edwards, I want you to get in touch with Sir Henry Clithering. He's at Melbourne Abbas. Ask him if he can get over here today. Tell him it's urgent. I say, I say, Colonel, could I have a word? Uh, what is it, Mr. Bartlett? Well, it probably isn't important, but I thought I ought to tell you. I can't find my car. Uh, are you telling me it's been stolen? Well, that's just it, don't you see? I mean, one can't tell, can one? I mean, someone may just have buzzed off in it, not meaning any harm. When did you last see it? Well, I was, I was trying to remember. I thought you said it was in the courtyard of the hotel last night. But that's just it. Was it? I didn't go and look, you see. Uh, let's get this quite clear. When was the last time you saw, actually saw, your car? I had it before lunch yesterday, I'm sure of that. I was going for a spin in the afternoon, but somehow, you know how it is, I went to sleep. So the last time you saw it was yesterday morning? Yes. Well, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I'll get one of my men to take a statement from you. And if you do, by any miracle, remember when you last saw it, I shall be at the police station in Muchbenham. So, it looks as if we've got a motive, for what it's worth. Fifty thousand pounds. Oh, murder has been done for a good deal less. Uh, but even so... You mean that... If Mr. Gaskell and Mrs. Jefferson already have a pretty reasonable income, they're not likely to risk a brutal murder. Well, their financial standing will have to be investigated, of course. Uh, can't say I like the look of the Gaskell chap. A bit, of, bit on the unscrupulous side, I imagine. Hmm. But that's a long way from making him a murderer. From what Josie Turner said, I don't see how it could have been possible anyway for either Gaskell or Mrs. Jefferson to have done it. They were both playing bridge from 20 minutes to 11 until midnight, by which time, according to the medical evidence, Ruby Keane was dead. Now, 
If you ask me, we shall be looking in another direction entirely. Uh, a boyfriend, you mean? It seems the only explanation. Someone she knew before she came here, who got to hear about Jefferson adopting her and killed her in a fit of jealous rage. But who on earth is this chap? I mean, supposing he exists. Did you have a look in the girl's room? Yes, sir. A very pokey little place, but ideal for leaving the hotel without being noticed. There's a staircase at the end of the corridor that leads down to the terrace at the side of the hotel. At that time of night, nobody would notice anyone coming or going. Oh, yes, but uh, did you find anything in the girl's room that might give any indication of a boyfriend? Yes, as a matter of fact, I did. Not much to go on, but it might just lead somewhere. There were some letters from a girl called Lil, who was at the Palais de Danse, where Ruby used to work. Yes, I made a few notes. Um, now then, here we are. Yes. Mr Finderson asks after you ever so often. Quite put out, he is. Young Reg has taken up with May, now you're gone. Barry asks after you now and then. I think I ought to go and have a word with this Lil, whoever she is. Yes, it might lead somewhere. Anything else? Well, not really. The whole room was a regular tip. Clothes lying all over the place. A pink dance rock thrown over the chair. Silk stockings rolled into a ball. The dead girl had bare feet. Yes, she only wore stockings for dancing. She used makeup on her legs for the rest of the time to save money. There was nothing else worth mentioning, nail parings and cotton wool stained with rouge and nail polish in the waste paper basket. Mm, nothing for us there. But what I can't understand is... Oh, excuse me, sir. Much better, mate. Two, one. Slack speaking. Yes. What? Where? When was this? Well, why didn't anyone tell us about this before? Yes, 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 I know. Look, you'd better get someone out there straight away. Oh. What was all that about? They found a burnt-out car at Venn's Quarry, about a couple of miles from here. There are traces of a charred body inside. When did this happen? Sometime last night. A farm labourer said he saw a glow in the sky, thought somebody was having a bonfire. What kind of car was it? The same make of car as that Bartlett chap reported stolen from the Majestic. Does this mean, sir, we've got two murders on our hands? It really is the most astonishing story. I'm sorry to have to drag you down all this way to listen to it, Sir Henry. I'm always happy to oblige an old friend. You know that, Conrad. Uh, but tell me, how on earth did the Bantries get involved in all this? They happen to be very old friends of mine. A Dolly's staying here, I believe. Yes, she came to see me this morning. They're old friends of mine, too. I suppose that wasn't why their house was chosen. As a way of hitting at you, it seems a bit far-fetched. But look, what exactly do you want me to do about it? Well, I'm an invalid. I can't get about as I'd wish, asking questions, looking into things. And I can't sit here just waiting for Colonel Melcher to dole out such scraps of information as he thinks he should reveal. Do you mean you want me to be some kind of amateur sleuth? Well, I wouldn't have thought that a former commissioner of Scotland Yard could be described as an amateur. <laughs> and I'm sure that any help you could give to Melchett would be gratefully accepted. I'm not so sure about that. 
and I'm not sure that this is really quite my line. I could tell you who would make a far better job of finding your murderer than I ever would. And who's that? You could see her from here. She's sitting down there on the terrace with her knitting. You don't mean that fluffy old dear with the dreadful hat? There's nothing in the least fluffy about Miss Marple. She's got a mind that's as sharp as a knife and she misses nothing. She's plumbed the depths of human iniquity and takes it all in a day's work. You're joking, of course. Oh, no, I'm not. She can run rings round Melchett any day. I think I might just have a little word with her. Oh, it is wonderful to see you again, Sir Henry. But what a sad story. Poor Mr. Jefferson. To live on crippled and helpless after his children are killed. And now to have to suffer this. Yes, my dear. The death of this wretched girl really has come as a terrible shock to him. She may, of course, have had some remarkable qualities. I doubt it. I doubt whether her qualities entered into it. Oh, come now. He isn't just a dirty old man. Oh, no, I wasn't implying that for a second. What I was trying to say was that he was looking for some girl to take the place of his dead daughter. And Ruby Keane saw her opportunity and played it for all she was worth. I've seen so many cases of the kind. I rather imagine you have. The young maidservant at Mr. Harbottle's, for instance. A very ordinary girl, quiet, with nice manners. His sister was called away to nurse a dying relative. And when she came back, she found the girl completely above herself, sitting down in the dining room and talking, and not wearing her cap or apron. She protested to Mr. Harbottle about the girl's behaviour, and he told her that she'd kept house long enough and it was time she made other arrangements. She had to go and live in uncomfortable rooms in Eastbourne. If only Conway could have found a girl in his own class. A friend's child, perhaps. Oh, that wouldn't have been nearly so satisfactory. It's like King Cofetua and the beggar maid. If you are a lonely, rich old man, it is more interesting to befriend someone who will be dazzled by your magnificence. Just like Mr. Badger. Mr. Badger? He had the chemist shop in St. Mary Mead. Made a lot of fuss over a young lady who worked in the toiletry section. He even bought her a diamond bracelet. Told his wife they must both look on her as a daughter and have her live in the house. What did the poor woman do? Oh, she took the trouble to find out a few things. And when she told Mr. Badger that the girl was carrying on with a very undesirable young man connected with the race course and had actually pawned the bracelet to give him money that was the end of it he gave Mrs. Badger a diamond ring the following Christmas can you think of any reason why Conway Jefferson should have developed this cofetua complex? I should think that perhaps his son-in-law or daughter-in-law might have wanted to get married again surely he couldn't have objected to that oh no, not objected but I'm sure... He was beginning to feel neglected. I still don't see what any of this has got to do with the pantry. How's Dolly taking it? Waiting for me to produce the rabbit out of the hat, I'm afraid. But it seems to me that there's a possibility that this might be the kind of crime that never gets solved. And if that happens, it will be absolutely disastrous for Colonel Bantry. 
That is why we have to find out the truth, Sir Henry. Uh, Dolly's coming now, and Jefferson's daughter-in-law with her. Henry! How do you do, Mrs. B? I can't tell you how distressed I am about this dreadful business. Don't call me Mrs. B, Henry. It sounds so middle class. Do you know Mrs. Jefferson? Of course. How are you, Adelaide? Oh, I'm all right, I suppose. It's Conway I'm worried about. We were on our way to have a drink with my brother-in-law, Mark Gaskell. Why don't you and Miss Markle come and join us? The girl was just a common or garden gold digger, and she knew her stuff. She'd got her hooks into old Jeff, all right. Couldn't you do anything about her? Well, we might have, if we'd realised it in time. Mark thinks I ought to have seen what was coming. You left the old boy alone too much, Eddie. Going off to have tennis lessons and all that? Well, I had to have some exercise, and I never dreamed... Gentlemen are frequently not as level-headed as they seem. I'm sure you're right. Unfortunately, Miss Marple, we didn't realise that. We wondered what the old boy saw in that rather insipid and meretricious little bag of tricks. We thought there was no harm in her. No harm in her. Wish I'd wrung her neck. Mark, you really All mustn't. right, Addy, but I like to speak my mind. £50,000 our esteemed father-in-law was proposing to settle upon that half-baked little slypus. Why couldn't he have left it all to Peter? Peter? Who is Peter? He's my son. My son by my first husband. Strange, isn't it? I always think of him as Mr Jefferson's grandson. Mm, so do I. Well, well, well. See who's over there on the terrace? What? Oh. What a sly little woman you are, Addy. Uh, do excuse me for a moment. I, I really must go and say hello. Isn't that Hugo McLean? Right first time. And who exactly is Hugo McLean? Addy's faithful swain, Sir Henry. She's only got to whistle and Hugo comes trotting from any odd corner of the globe. Oh, a romance. One of the good old-fashioned kind, Jane. She's been going on for years. He hopes that someday she'll marry him. I dare say she will. But I'd better go and take a look at old Jeff. It doesn't do to leave him on his own for too long in case some other little minx gets her claws into him. So long. Well, Miss Marvel, what do you think of the principal beneficiaries of the crime? Mark Gaskell is a rather downy fellow, I think. A downy fellow? What on earth do you mean by that? Just like Mr Cargill the Builder. He bluffed a lot of people into having things done to their houses that they never really wanted. He charged them heavily for it, too. And Mrs Jefferson? She's the kind of woman that everyone likes. I can imagine she could go on getting married again and again. A very devoted mother, too, I should oh, think. She positively dotes on little Peter. Which reminds me, thank goodness you're here, Sir Henry. Peter rather fancies himself as a detective. He gave this to me. He thought it was an important clue. Here. A matchbox. Look inside it. A fingernail. Not just any fingernail. It was Ruby Keane's. How did Peter come by it? Apparently, she got it caught in her shawl and Mrs Jefferson cut it off for her. She told Peter to put it in the waste paper basket, but he kept it. Isn't it disgusting? But if I tell him I've given it to the former commissioner of Scotland Yard, he'll think he's well on the way to solving the murder. <laughs> but here's Josie. Josie? The dead girl's cousin. How are you, Miss Turner? 
This is an old friend of mine, Sir Henry Clithering. How do you do, Miss Turner? How do you do, Sir Henry? It's so awful, and it's not even in the papers yet. I suppose the moment it is, everyone will come down here and start asking questions. I don't know what I should do. Yes, it will be very difficult for you, I'm afraid. You see, the manager told me not to talk to anyone about it. He wants everything to be business as usual. But you can't very well offend people, can you, if they start asking questions? Do you mind me asking you a question, Miss Turner? Ask me anything you like. Has there been any unpleasantness between you and Mrs. Jefferson and Mr. Gaskell over this? Over the murder, you mean? No, I don't mean the murder. Well, neither of them actually said anything, but I think they thought it was my fault. Mr. Jefferson taking such a fancy to Ruby, I mean. I never dreamed such a thing would happen. But once it had happened... Well, it was a piece of luck for Ruby, wasn't it? Everybody's got to have a piece of luck sometime. But I must be off. There are five bridge tables to see to tonight. Quite a forceful girl in her way, isn't she? Look here, Mrs. B. You really don't want me to go on carrying this beastly bit of fingernail about with me, do you? Oh, just a moment, Sir Henry. I should like to see that. Thank you. It has been worrying me, you know, how to account for her nails. I don't quite follow you. The dead girl's fingernails were cut quite short, which seemed rather strange. A girl like that usually has absolute talons. But, of course, if one got torn off, she might cut the others close to match. Did they find nail pairings in her room, I wonder? I don't know. I'll have a word with Inspector Slack when he gets back. Gets back? He hasn't gone over to Gossington to worry poor Arthur again, has he? No, he went off to investigate a burnt-out car they found in a quarry. Was there someone in the car? I'm afraid so, yes. I expect that will be the girl guide who's missing, Pamela Reeves. What on earth makes you think that? Well, it was given out on the wireless that she was missing from her home last night, and she lived at Danley Vale. That's not very far from here. She was last seen at the Girl Guide Rally on Danbury Downs. That is very close indeed. In fact, she'd have had to pass through Danemouth to get home. I mean, it looks as though she might have seen or perhaps heard something she was not meant to see or hear. If so, she would be a source of danger to the murderer and have to be removed. The two things might be connected, don't you think? A second murder? Why not? When someone has committed one murder, they don't shrink from another, do they? Nor even from a third. You don't think there'll be a third murder, surely? I think it's just possible. Highly probable, in fact. You frighten me, Miss Marple. And do you know who is going to be murdered? Oh, yes. I have a very good idea. I rather like your friend, Dolly. Jane Marple? Mm. Oh, she's a very remarkable woman. People call her a bit of a scandalmonger, but she isn't really. Just a low opinion of human nature. <laughs> I suppose you could call it that, Addie. It's rather refreshing after hearing someone totally unworthy praised to the skies all the time. You mean Ruby Keane? Oh, I shouldn't really speak ill of the dead. There wasn't any harm in her. Poor little rat. She had to fight for what she wanted. She was common and rather silly and quite good-natured, but a decided gold digger. 
I don't think she planned it at all. She just saw her opportunity and made the most of it. And she knew just how to appeal to an elderly man who was lonely. I suppose Conway was lonely. Hmm. He was this summer. Mark says it was all my fault. But you see, I found it so difficult to go on being Mr. Jefferson's dutiful, honorary daughter all the time and having to conceal quite so much from him. Conceal what? I don't know what you mean. When I married Frank, Mr. Jefferson settled a large sum of money on him, said he wanted his children to be independent and not have to wait for his death. But it was too much too easily. He really ought to have accustomed Frank to his independence little by little. You mean that the money went to his head? Well, he thought he was as good a man as his father, as clever about money and business. Uh. And, of course, he wasn't. He didn't exactly speculate with the money, but he invested in the wrong things at the wrong time. And the more he lost, the more eager he was to get it back by some clever deal. So things just went from bad to worse. Surely Conway could have advised him. Well, he wouldn't be advised. He wanted to be a success on his own account. He wouldn't let Mr Jefferson know how much he was losing. When Frank died, there was very little left, only a tiny income for me. But I couldn't tell his father that. It would have been betraying Frank. Mr Jefferson has always assumed that I'm a very wealthy widow, and I've never undeceived him. It's been a point of honour. And, of course, Peter and I have lived with him practically all the time since Frank's death, and he's paid all our living expenses. So I never had to worry. As far as he's concerned, I'm not Frank's widow. I'm still Frank's wife. Yes, I can see that must have been very trying. Suddenly, this summer, I felt rebellious. It's an awful thing to say, but I didn't want to go on thinking of Frank. I wanted to wipe the slate clean and start again. I, I wanted to be me. I'm still young, and I want to be able to enjoy myself. And where does Hugo McLean fit into all this? Oh. Hugo's a dear. He's wanted to marry me for ages, but until this summer I never really thought about it. Not seriously. And I suppose Mark's right. I did neglect Jeff. And when Ruby turned up and gave him something new to think about, I was rather glad. It left me free to do what I wanted. Of course, I never dreamed he would be so infatuated with her. And what happened when you found out? Well, I was absolutely dumbfounded and very angry. Yeah. I think I might have been angry, too. Well, there was Peter, too, you yes. see. My son's whole future depends on Jeff. Although he's no relation at all, he was practically Jeff's grandson. And to think that because of that vulgar, gold-digging little simpleton, he was going to be practically disinherited. Oh, I could have killed her. You should have heard her, Jane. I was really quite horrified. Yes, I can well imagine. It must have come as a terrible shock to her when she heard that Mr Jefferson was proposing to adopt little Ruby legally. You don't suppose that it was all some kind of family plot? That Josie saw that Mr Jefferson was feeling left out in the cold and got Ruby down here deliberately? No, I don't think so at all. Josie doesn't have the kind of mind that can foresee people's reactions. <sighs> She's rather dense in that way. She has one of those shrewd, limited, practical minds that never do foresee the future and are always astonished by it. I can't help feeling there must have been somebody else in Ruby's life. I've been talking to all the chambermaids, but it isn't any good. I can't find out a thing. 
Do you think that girl can really have been carrying on with someone without everybody in the hotel knowing about it? I should say definitely not. Somebody knows, depend upon it, if it's true. But she must have been very clever about it. <sighs> we don't seem to be getting on at all. I thought you'd know at once. Oh, I do wish we'd get a move on and solve the whole wretched thing. I am doing my best, Dolly. Well, you can't imagine the rumours that are flying around about poor Arthur. Not just in St Mary Mead, but all over the county. They're saying that the girl was Arthur's mistress, that she was his illegitimate daughter, that she was blackmailing him. They're saying anything that comes into their heads. I won't have the dear old boy go through hell for something he didn't do. That's the only reason I came to Danemouth and left him at home, to find out the truth. I know, dear. That is also why I am here. Mind if I have a word with you, Sir Henry? Not at all, Mark. Take a seat. Thank you. You see, it's just dawned on me that I'm probably suspect number one with the police. They've been delving into my financial troubles. I'm broke, you know. Well, very nearly so. If dear old Jeff dies according to schedule in a month or so, all will be well. You've always been a bit of a gambler. Risk everything. That's my motto. So, you see, it's quite a lucky thing for me that somebody strangled that poor kid. Don't get me wrong, I didn't do it. I don't really think I could murder anybody. I'm far too easygoing. But I can hardly expect the police to believe that. I must look like the answer to a criminal investigator's prayer. I had a motive. I was on the spot. I can't understand why I'm not in the jug already. You do happen to have that useful little thing, an alibi. Yes, but it all depends on the time of death. What happens if they call in another doctor who says that little Ruby was killed at five in the morning? Where's my alibi then? At any rate, you're able to joke about it. Damn bad taste, isn't it? You mustn't think I'm not sorry for old Jeff. But look at it this way. Think how much worse it would have been if he'd found her out. What do you mean by that? Where did Ruby go off to? I'll lay you any odds you like that she went to meet a man. Jeff wouldn't have liked that. If he'd found out that she was deceiving him, that she wasn't the little innocent she pretended to be, it might well have finished the old boy off. Wouldn't take much to do it, after all. Are you fond of him or not? I'm very fond of him. And at the same time, I resent him. He's kind and generous, but everybody has to dance to his tune. I loved Rosamond, but she's been dead a long time now. And I'm a man, after all. And look at poor Addie. Give her half the chance and she'd marry again. Jeff doesn't realise it, but he's locked us in a prison. I broke out on the quiet a long time ago. Addie broke out this summer and it gave him a shock. Result? Ruby Keane. But as old Wordsworth put it, she is in her grave. And oh, the difference to me. There doesn't seem to be much doubt that the body in the car was Pamela Reeves, Colonel. Well, they can't have had much to go on, surely. I mean, part of one foot and a shoe. Uh, the shoe was one of those black-strapped affairs. Her father has positively identified it as Pamela's. And there was a button from her girl guide uniform. And you're satisfied that the fire was started deliberately? Well, there were three empty cans of petrol in the hedge. 
I think we can be fairly certain that the poor kid was dead before the car was set on fire. The way the charred remains were lined, thrown across the seat, shows that. Probably drugged or knocked on the head. The point for us to settle is whether the two murders are connected. I'd say definitely yes. Mm. So would I. Pamela Reeves attended a girl guide rally on Danebury Downs. Her companions say that she was perfectly normal and cheerful. She didn't catch the bus back with them. She said she was going into Danemouth to buy something at Woolworths, and she'd catch the bus home from there. Her parents reckon she'd probably have taken a shortcut across the fields and down a lane which would have brought her out by the side of the majestic hotel. And that's probably what sealed her fate. She must have come across something concerning Ruby Keane. Uh, perhaps she overheard the murderer arranging to meet Ruby that evening. He suddenly noticed that Pamela was there, realised that he had to silence her. Of course, that's assuming that the murder was premeditated and not spontaneous. I believe that's the way it was, Colonel. I don't see otherwise how you can account for the death of the Reeves child. And besides, there was the car. It was George Bartlett's. <sighs> George Bartlett. What do you think, Slack? Well, he was the last person seen with Ruby Keane. Had they made a date to go out together earlier, discussed it, say, before the dinner, and did Pamela Reeves happen to overhear? He didn't report the loss of the car until the following morning, and he was extremely vague about it. Well, that might be cleverness, sir. As I see it, he's either a very clever gentleman pretending to be a silly ass, or else, well... He's just a silly ass. Yeah, but where's the motive, Slack? As things stand, he'd no reason whatever to murder Ruby Keane. You're right there, sir. And there's no shortage of motive elsewhere. Oh, what exactly do you mean by that? Mr Conway Jefferson may think that Mr Gaskell and Adelaide Jefferson are comfortably off, but that is not the case. Apparently they're both extremely hard up. Is that so? It seems that Mrs Jefferson's husband fancied himself as a good judge of investments. He wasn't, and his holdings have gone steadily down since his death. I should say that if she weren't living with her father-in-law, she'd find it very hard to make ends meet. And his health is such that he isn't expected to live long. Well, it's a miracle the shock of Ruby Keane's murder didn't finish him off. And what about Mark Gaskell? I can't say I like the look of him very much. Well, as you say, sir, he's a gambler, pure and simple. He's got himself into a bit of mess and needs more money rather badly at the moment. A good deal of it. Getting that girl out of the way would have meant 25,000. But he has a sound alibi. That's right. And so is Mrs Jefferson. They were both playing bridge from the time Ruby went off to dance with young Bartlett until well after midnight. And the doctor's absolutely certain the girl couldn't have been killed after midnight? He's quite adamant about it, Colonel. Am I to understand that washes out the other fellow? The film chappy who lives near Gossington Hall? Basil Blake? It's a pity about Blake. He fits the bill very well. Dined at the Majestic quite often, danced with Ruby Keane. Josie Turner thought he was quite fond of her, apparently. But he was at a party at the studios that night. Didn't leave until about half past twelve. Anyone bear out his statement? Yes, several other people who were at the party, sir. Though they were probably a bit far gone by then. And what distance are the studios? About 35 miles. Well, then it doesn't look as if we've got much to go on there. So, where does that leave us, Slack? Precisely nowhere, I'm afraid, Colonel. 
So, have you had any luck, Sir Henry? I had a quiet word with Jefferson's valet, Edwards. He is of the opinion that Ruby Keane didn't care tuppence, as he put it, for poor old Conway, and he certainly thought there was another man in her life. He said that one day a snapshot fell out of Ruby's handbag. Conway pounced on it immediately and wanted to know who it was. She was quite frightened at first, but then she just giggled and said it was some silly young idiot she had danced with once and that he must have stuffed it into her bag without her noticing. And did the valet manage to get a good look at the photograph? A dark young man with rather untidy hair, he said. No one he recognised. Excuse me, Sir Henry. Ladies. Hello, Slack. Uh, what can we do for you? I rather wanted to have a word with Miss Marples. Of course, of course. Uh, would you like Mrs. Bantry and I... Oh, no, 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 sir, no. Why did you take a seat, Stack? All right. Thank you, sir. What can I do for you, Inspector? Well, it's about the girl guides. I think it's possible that they may know something. It seems to me that if Pamela Reeves was really going to Woolworths, she would probably have tried to persuade one of the other girls to go with her. Girls usually like to shop with someone. How very observant of you, Inspector. (laughs) But I have a suspicion that Woolworths was only an excuse. Oh. She might have been intending to go somewhere else and may have let slip something. It's certainly worth following up. We rounded up a few of the girls who were specially friendly with Pamela, but if it's left to me, I know very well that they'll just clam up. I thought perhaps if Miss Marple were to have a word with them, she might get a bit further. I dare say she knows a lot more about girls than I do. Oh, you certainly do, don't you, Jane? What with the Sunday school and the brownies and training young girls from the orphanage? Well, I do have quite a lot of experience as to when a girl is speaking the truth and when she is holding something back. I'd certainly be willing to help you, Inspector. Oh, thank you, Ma'am. I'm very grateful. And as to the other little matter Sir Henry said you were inquiring about... Oh, yes, the nail clippings. Were there any? Oh, yes, there were, Miss Marple. In Ruby Keane's wastebasket. Why did you want to know? It was one of the things that seemed wrong when I looked at the body. Girls who are very much made up usually have long fingernails. And then, when young Peter Carmody said she'd caught one of her nails in her shawl and someone had to cut it off... It seemed possible that she could have trimmed the others to make an even appearance. You said just now, one of the things that seemed wrong with the body. Was there something else? Oh, yes. The dress. The dress was all wrong. But what was wrong with it, Miss Marple? Well, it was an old dress, shabby and rather worn. If Ruby Keane had changed her dress to go out on the sly with a boyfriend, she would have worn her best dress, girls do. But suppose she was going outside to the rendezvous, in an open car, perhaps. She wouldn't want to risk messing up a new frog. I'm afraid you don't understand that kind of girl, Sir Henry. Exactly. A well-bred girl is always careful to wear the right clothes for the right occasion. Ruby wasn't, well, to put it bluntly, Ruby wasn't a lady. She belonged to a class that wears its best clothes, however unsuitable the occasion. She would have kept on the dress she'd been wearing, the foamy pink one. Then what's your explanation, Miss Marble? I haven't got one yet, but I can't help feeling it is important. Ah. Well, if it's all right with you, I'll call you in a couple of hours' time and run you over to the police station. That should give me time to get together the girls who knew Ruby. 
There were five girls waiting for me at the police station, ranging from county to farmers' and shopkeepers' daughters. I listened while Inspector Slack questioned them one after another, and they all told the same story that Pamela Reeves had said nothing to them except that she was going to Woolworths. Well, Miss Marple? I should like to speak to Florence Small, please, and I should like to be alone with her. Of course, Miss Marple. You understand, don't you, Florence, that it is important that everything that Pamela did on the day of her death should be known. I understand. And I'm sure you want to do your best to help. Yes, ma'am. You're afraid, aren't you, that you might be blamed for not having spoken sooner and for not stopping Pamela at the time? No, I'm not... Now, I don't... don't lie to me, Florence. Pamela didn't go to Woolworths, did she? But she... Something to do with the films, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, it was. I thought so. Now, I want all the details, please, Florence. I've been so worried, and I promised Pam I'd never say a word to a soul. And what did she tell you? It was as we were walking up the lane to the bus, on the way to the rally. She asked if I could keep a secret, and I said yes. Well? She said she was going into Danemouth after the rally. She'd been approached by a film producer. He just walked up to her in the street and said she had exactly the face he'd been looking for. It was to play the part of a schoolgirl who changes places with a review artist. Oh. But he warned her not to build on it. He said he couldn't tell until she'd done a film test, with makeup on and all that. Did he say anything about her telling her parents? Oh, yes. She wasn't to say a word until he was certain that she could do the part, until the company had seen the film test. There was no point in getting them all worked up. <laughs> he said she mustn't be disappointed if it failed, but things like this really did happen, like Vivian Lee getting the lead in Gone with the Wind. He'd been working over in Hollywood and had come over to England to make a film at the Lenville Studios. Oh, yes. I think I've heard of them. It was arranged that Pam should go into Danemouth after the rally to meet him at his hotel. He said they had a small studio in the town, and that when the test was over she could catch the bus home and say she'd been shopping. Oh. She got through the rally without turning her hair, but as she set off down the footpath she gave me a wink. I ought to have stopped her, I suppose. I ought to have known a thing like that couldn't be true. What put you on to that particular girl, Miss Marple? You probably haven't had as much experience of girls telling lies as I have, Colonel. I watched her as she went out of the door after she'd been questioned by the inspector. I knew then that she had something to hide. Lemville Studios, eh? Uh, I knew that nasty little whippersnapper Blake was mixed up in this. Mm -hmm. And now I'm afraid I must hurry away. Uh, are you going back to the hotel? Yes, but only to pack. I must return to St Mary Mead as soon as possible. There is a great deal for me to do there. As soon as I got back, I made straight for the vicarage. I wanted to find out if there was anything that would enable me to make a little round of the village with a collection book. As it happened, there was no shortage of good causes the Knave Restoration Fund, the Unmarried Mothers, the Boy Scouts outing, the Bishop's Appeal for Deep Sea Fishermen. But I wanted something where I would not have to answer too many questions, and so I decided on the Vicarage Sale of Work. Yes? Can I help you? How do you do? May I come in for a moment? 
Yes, I suppose so. I mean, uh... Oh, thank you so much. I just called to see whether I could enlist your help for the sale of work next week. Sale of work? At the vicarage next Wednesday. <laughs> I'm afraid I couldn't pos... Oh, not even a small subscription. Half a crown, perhaps. <sighs> oh, well. Yes, I dare say I can manage that. Now, where did I put my handbag? I see you have no hearthrug in front of the fire. There used to be one. I don't know where it's got to. Here you are. Oh, thank you, my dear. Uh, what name shall I put down? Dinah Lee. Oh, this is Mr Basil Blake's cottage, is it not? Yes, and I miss Dinah Lee. Will you allow me to give you a little advice? It is most unwise of you to continue to use your maiden name in the village. What on earth do you mean? In a short time, you and your husband may need all the help you can get. It has amused you both, I dare say, to pretend that you were not married. It kept the old fogies away. Nevertheless, old fogies do have their uses. How did you know we were married? Did you check at Somerset House? Somerset House? Oh, no, but it was quite easy to guess. Everything you know gets around in a village. The kind of quarrels you have, typical of the early days of marriage, you can only really get under anybody's skin if you are married to them. When there is no legal bond, people have to keep assuring themselves that they're happy. But what made you say that very soon we'd need all the help we can get? Because any minute now, your husband may be arrested for murder. <sighs> You're not joking. No, indeed. Have you seen the papers? You mean that girl from the Majestic Hotel? Would you believe it? The shop's run out of gin. Who's this? She says you're going to be arrested for the murder of that Ruby Keen girl. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, is this true? But why? You didn't even know her, did you? Oh, yes. He knew her. Just you mind your own business, whoever you are. Look, Dinah, I hardly knew her at all. I ran across her once or twice at the Majestic, that's all. What did you do with the hearthrug? I put it in the dustbin. That was very stupid of you. People don't put good hearthrugs in dustbins. It had spangles from her dress on it, I suppose. Yes, I couldn't get them off. What are you both talking about? Well, ask her. She seems to know all about it. I will tell you what I think happened. You had a violent quarrel with your wife at a party, perhaps because you had too much to drink. You drove down here. I don't know what time you arrived. After two in the morning. The place was all dark. I opened the door, switched on the light. And you saw a girl lying on the hearthrug. A girl in a white evening dress, strangled. Did you recognise her? I couldn't look at her. Her face was all blue and swollen. You were in a fuddled state and you were, I think, panic-stricken. I thought Dinah might show up at any minute. And she'd find me with a dead girl's body and think I'd killed her. I had to get rid of it. Then I thought, I'll put her in old Bantry's library. He's always looking down his nose and sneering at me. Serve the pompous old idiot right. He'll look a fool when a dead blonde is found on his hearthrug. I must have been pretty drunk. It actually seemed amusing at the time. Yes, yes. Little Tommy Bond had very much the same idea. He said his teacher was always picking on him. He put a frog in the clock and it jumped out at her. By the morning I'd sobered up. I was scared stiff. And then that chief constable came round. The only way I could hide my panic was by being abominably rude. I think the police are here now. Uh, keep your head, Dinah. 
Get on to the family lawyer, old Sims. And don't worry, I didn't do it. I know you didn't. And you know who did? Oh, yes, I do. But it is not going to be easy to prove. Come in. Mr Basil Blake, I have a warrant here for your arrest on the charge of murdering Ruby Keane on the night of the 21st of September last. I warn you now that anything you say may be used at your trial. Jane, where have you been? I've been trying to get you everywhere. What's happening? Don't worry, Dolly. Ah, Miss Marvel, glad you come. <laughs> My wife's been ringing you up like a lunatic. I thought I'd better bring you the news. What news? Basil Blake has been arrested for the murder of Ruby Keane. Basil Blake, eh? Oh, but he didn't do it. He put her in your library, but he didn't kill her. He found her dead in his cottage. Oh, a likely story. And why try to force the murder on poor Arthur? I don't think he saw it like that. It was more of a joke. He was rather under the influence of alcohol at the time. Oh, bottled, was he? Oh, well, can't judge a fellow by what he does when he's had a few. When I was at Cambridge, I climbed up the gate at Trinity and put a chamber pot on the... Oh, good Lord. So sorry, Miss Marple. But if he didn't do it, Jane, do you know who did? I'm going to need your help in this, Dolly. I think that if we went up to Somerset House, we might get a very good idea. Uh, let's get this clear, Sir Henry. What exactly is it that you want me to do? I'm simply informing you, Colonel, that my friend Conway Jefferson is calling in his solicitor in the morning for the purpose of making a new will. And he's proposing to inform his son-in-law and his daughter-in-law of that fact. He's going to tell them this evening. That he's leaving it all to the boys' brigade or, or something of the sort. Uh, to a hostel for young dancers. But you've got the general idea. And you want us to keep an eye on him, is that it? I think it might be advisable. So you're not satisfied with the case against Basil Blake? Let's say that Miss Marple isn't. And I think you'd better take a look at this. Oh, I see. Well, this puts an entirely different complexion on the matter. Mm. Uh, how did you dig this up? Uh, women are eternally interested in marriages. <laughs> Especially elderly single women. <laughs> uh, I'll get Slack and some of his men to keep a close watch. There'll be no funny business. That night, there was a full moon shining over a still sea through Conway Jefferson's window. The curtains parted, and for a moment, a figure was silhouetted against the moonlight, moving steadily towards the bed. Oh, no, you don't! <laughs> Turn the light on, Constable, and let's see what we've got here. So it was you, was it? Speaking as your Watson, Miss Marple, I would like to know your methods. You've done it again, by Jove. Run rings around me as usual. Uh, I want to hear all about it from the beginning. Yes, tell us how you worked it all out. It couldn't have come as a greater surprise. In this case, certain things were taken for granted from the first. You mean... We should have confined ourselves to the simple facts. Exactly. The facts were that the victim was quite young 
and that she bit her nails, and that her teeth stuck out a little, as those of young girls do, if not corrected in time. Of course, it was all very confusing, the body being found in Colonel Bantry's library. It made the wrong pattern. <laughs> it certainly did, with half the village being convinced that she was his little bit on the side. It wasn't meant to be like that, which confused everybody a good deal. I don't quite follow. The real idea had been to plant the body on poor Basil Blake. A much more likely person. And his action in putting the body in the colonel's library delayed things considerably and must have been a source of great annoyance to the murderer. Uh, in what way, Miss Marple? Originally, you see, Mr Blake would have been the first object of suspicion because you were meant to find the body on his hearthrug. You would have found out that he knew the dead girl, discovered that he was married to Dinah Lee, and you would probably have concluded that Ruby tried to blackmail him, or something of the sort, and that he strangled her. Just your average commoner garden murder, in fact. But, of course, it all went wrong, with the result that it wasn't long before the spotlight was turned on Ruby Keane's relationship with Mr Jefferson and his family. And the fact that I was an old friend of the Bentries must have thoroughly confused the issue. As Sir Henry is well aware, I have a very suspicious mind. A mind like a sink, I believe your nephew says. <laughs> and having that sort of mind, I looked at once at the financial angle. Two people stood to benefit by Ruby Keane's death. £50,000 is a lot of money, especially when you're in financial difficulties. As both your son-in-law and daughter-in-law were, Mr Jefferson. Poor Eddie. If only she'd told me what a wretched mess Frank had left her in. She would have regarded it as a betrayal of trust. But at the same time, she was growing tired of being completely dependent on you. And she was passionately devoted to her son... And some women have the curious idea that crimes committed for the sake of their offspring are morally justified. Mm, very true. Mr Mark Gaskell, of course, was a much more likely starter, if I may use the phrase. He was a gambler and had not, I fancied, a very high moral code. But I was of the opinion that a woman was concerned in the case. What gave you that idea? I will come to that in due course, Sir Henry. As it happened, it was very annoying to find out that both Adelaide Jefferson and Mark Gaskell had alibis for the time when, according to the medical evidence, Ruby Keane had met her death. And then we found the burnt-out car with a girl's body in it. And you saw that the alibis might be entirely worthless. I now had the two halves of the case... But they didn't fit. The one person whom I knew to be concerned in the crime had no conceivable motive. If it had not been for Dinah Lee, I should never have thought of it. And there was the answer, waiting for me in Somerset House. It was the most obvious thing in the world. Marriage. Good Lord, of course. If either of the two people who stood to gain was married, then the other party to the marriage was probably also involved. Of course, there was always Mrs Jefferson's friend, Mr McLean, to take into account as well. She concealed her feelings for him from me very successfully. But really, in my mind, I knew already. You could not get away from the bitten nails. 
Bitten? But I thought she tore her nail and cut the others. Oh, nonsense. Bitten nails and close-cut nails are quite different. Hmm? The fact that they were bitten could only mean one thing. They were not those of a professional dancer. Therefore, the body in Colonel Bantry's library couldn't be Ruby Keen at all. Oh. And that brought me straight to the one person who must be involved in the murder. The person who identified the body. Josie. She was puzzled, completely mystified at finding the body where it was, because she knew none better where it ought to have been found, in Basil Blake's cottage. She'd done her best to direct attention to him by dropping hints about Ruby and a film man and by slipping a photograph of him into Ruby's handbag. Josie. Josie. Shrewd, practical, hard as nails and all out for money. I see now what you meant about our taking things for granted, Miss Marple. It never occurred to me to doubt Josie Turner for a moment when she said that the body was that of Ruby Keane. There was no apparent motive. Oh, none at all, until Dolly and I went off to Somerset House and discovered that for over a year she had been married to Mark Gaskell. And therefore had a very good reason to prevent Ruby inheriting my money. It's a pretty cold-blooded business, when you come to think of it. I suppose it was Mark Gaskell who pretended to be the film producer who approached the poor little Reeves girl. He took her into the hotel by a side door and introduced her to the studio's makeup expert. Josie again, presumably. It makes me quite sick to think of it. That poor girl sits in Josie's bathroom while she bleaches her hair, makes up her face and varnishes her finger and toenails. That, by the way, Sir Henry is why I was so sure that a woman must have been involved. And then Josie drugged her. And when she was unconscious, Josie clothed her in one of Ruby's old dresses. Then after dinner, Mark Gaskell took the poor child to Blake's cottage, strangled her with the belt of the frock, and arranged her body on the hearth rug. That must have been just after ten o'clock, then he drove back to Danemouth at top speed and joined the others in the lounge where Ruby Keane, still very much alive, was doing her exhibition dance with Raymond. Was it Josie who killed her, do you think? I'm certain of it. Immediately after Ruby went up to her room after dancing with Mr Bartlett, Josie finished her off with an injection, perhaps, or a blow on the back of her head. And then... She came down and asked everyone where Ruby could possibly have got to, because it was time for her second exhibition dance. After she had made a great show of standing in for Ruby, she calmly carried on playing bridge with the Jeffersons. In the early hours of the morning, she dressed Ruby in Pamela's clothes, dragged the body down the side stairs to Bartlett's car, drove it down to the quarry, poured petrol over it, and set it alight. Mm, an intricate plot. No more intricate than the steps of a dance. And was the dramatic finale your idea as well, Miss Marple? Well, as a matter of fact, it was. It is so nice to be sure, isn't it? Sure? By exposing me to the mercies of that ruthless woman? 
Your life was never really at risk, Conrad. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. You see, once Mark and Josie knew that you were going to make a new will, they had to do something. Mark, of course, had to be absolutely in the clear, so he went off to London. Josie was to take care of your murder. The inspector tells me there was digitalis in the syringe she was carrying. Any doctor would have diagnosed death from heart trouble. So that the third death you spoke of was to be Conway's? Oh, no. I meant Basil Blake. Oh? They intended to get him hanged. Oh, I always knew that Rosamond had married a rotter. Tried not to admit it to myself. It was Josie who was the real brains behind it. The irony of it was that it was she who brought Ruby down here in the first place. Never dreaming you would see in her another daughter, Mr. Jefferson. <laughs> Poor little Ruby. But that's all over now. I really am going to make a new will, you know. I shall settle 20,000 on Eddie and leave everything else to her son. And I sincerely hope that she'll marry this McLean fellow. She's spent too much of her life playing cards with an old cripple. I really cannot tell you, Jane, how relieved I am that this whole wretched business has been cleared up. Arthur was just about at the end of his tether. Everyone was giving him the cold shoulder. The Duffs cancelled their invitation to dinner because they said their cook was ill. The Ranisher County Council asked him if he'd mind if someone else took the chair at their next oh, meeting. Ah, Miss and... Marple. Good evening. Good evening. I understand a vote of thanks is due. Now, why don't we all repair to the drawing room for a glass of sherry and drink your health? That is very kind of you, Colonel. But if you really do intend to drink my health... There is only one place where you should do it. Uh -huh. And where is that, Miss Marvel? The library, Colonel. It is time that old ghosts were laid to rest. In Agatha Christie's The Body in the Library, Miss Marple was played by June Whitfield. Colonel Melchett, Richard Todd. Dolly Bantry, Pauline Jameson. Colonel Bantry, Jack Watling. Sir Henry Clithering, Graham Crowden. Conway Jefferson, John Hartley. Inspector Slack, John Baddeley. Adelaide Jefferson, Priyanga Elan. Mark Gaskell, Harry Myers. Josie Turner, Elizabeth Conboy. Basil Blake, Giles Fagan. Dinah Lee, Tilly Gaunt. George Bartlett, Ben Crow. Florence Small, Eleanor Hodson. The Body in the Library was dramatised for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's shows. Visit our website at www.strangerspilgrims.com.